BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Preface to Bleak House This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Preface. A Chancery judge once had the kindness to inform me, as one of a company of some hundred and fifty men and women not labouring under any suspicions of lunacy, that the Court of Chancery, though the shining subject of much popular prejudice, at which point I thought the judge's eye had a cast in my direction, was almost immaculate. There had been, he admitted, a trivial blemish or so in its rate of progress, but this was exaggerated, and had been entirely owing to the parsimony of the public, which guilty public, it appeared, had been until lately bent in the most determined manner on by no means enlarging the number of chancery judges appointed. I believe by Richard the Second, but any other king will do as well. This seemed to me too profound a joke to be inserted in the body of this book, or I should have restored it to Conversation Kenge or to Mr. Voles, with one or other of whom I think it must have originated. In such mouths I might have coupled it with an apt quotation from one of Shakespeare's sonnets. My nature is subdued to what it works in, like the dyer's hand. Pity me, then, and wish I were renewed. But as it is wholesome that the parsimonious public should know what has been doing, and still is doing, in this connection, I mention here that everything set forth in these pages concerning the Court of Chancery is substantially true, and within the truth. The case of Gridley is in no essential altered from one of actual occurrence, made public by a disinterested person who was professionally acquainted with the whole of the monstrous wrong from beginning to end. At the present moment, August 1853, there is a suit before the court which was commenced nearly twenty years ago, in which from thirty to forty counsel have been known to appear at one time, in which costs have been incurred to the amount of seventy thousand pounds, which is a friendly suit and which is, I am assured, no nearer to its termination now than when it was begun. There is another well-known suit in Chancery, not yet decided, which was commenced before the close of the last century, and in which more than double the amount of seventy thousand pounds has been swallowed up in costs. If I wanted other authorities for John Dice and John Dice, 
I could rain them on these pages to the shame of a parsimonious public. There is only one other point on which I offer a word of remark. The possibility of what is called spontaneous combustion has been denied since the death of Mr. Crook, and my good friend Mr. Lewes, quite mistaken as he soon found in supposing the thing to have been abandoned by all authorities, published some ingenious letters to me at the time when that event was chronicled, arguing that spontaneous combustion could not possibly be. I have no need to observe that I do not willfully or negligently mislead my readers, and that before I wrote that description I took pains to investigate the subject. There are about thirty cases on record, of which the most famous, that of the Countess Cornelia de Bordi Cessonate, was minutely investigated and described by Giuseppe Bianchini, a prebendary of Verona, otherwise distinguished in letters, who published an account of it at Verona in 1731, which he afterwards republished at Rome. The appearances, beyond all rational doubt, observed in that case, are the appearances observed in Mr. Crook's case. The next most famous instance happened at Reims six years earlier, and the historian in that case is Le Cat, one of the most renowned surgeons produced by France. The subject was a woman, whose husband was ignorantly convicted of having murdered her, but on solemn appeal to a higher court he was acquitted, because it was shown upon the evidence that she had died the death of which this name of spontaneous combustion is given. I do not think it necessary to add to these notable facts, and that general reference to the authorities, which will be found at page 30, volume 2, the recorded opinions and experiences of distinguished medical professors, French, English, and Scotch, in more modern days, contenting myself with observing that I shall not abandon the facts, until there shall have been a considerable spontaneous combustion of the testimony on which human occurrences are usually received. In Bleak House I have purposely dwelt upon the romantic side of familiar things. 1853 End of Preface Chapter One of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter One in Chancery. London. Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable November weather as much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus forty feet long or so waddling like an elephantine lizard up hoban hill smoke lowering down from chimney-pots making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes gone into mourning one might imagine for the death of the sun dogs undistinguishable in mire horses, scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers, foot-passengers jostling one another's umbrellas in a general infection of ill-temper, and losing their foothold at street-corners, where tens of thousands of other foot-passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, if this day ever broke, 
adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement, and accumulating at compound interest. Fog everywhere, fog up the river, where it flows among green eights and meadows, fog down the river, where it rolls defiled among the tiers of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex marshes, fog on the Kentish heights, fog creeping into the cabooses of collier brigs, fog lying out on the yards and hovering in the rigging of great ships, fog drooping on the gunwales of barges and small boats, fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners, wheezing by the firesides of their wards, fog in the stem and bowl of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper down in his close cabin, fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little prentice-boy on deck, chance people on the bridges, peeping over the parapets into a nether sky of fog, with fog all round them, as if they were up in a balloon, and hanging in the misty clouds. Gas, looming through the fog in diverse places in the streets, much as the sun may, from the spongy fields, be seen to loom by husbandman and ploughboy. Most of the shops lighted two hours before their time, as the gas seems to know, for it has a haggard and unwilling look. The raw afternoon is rawest, and the dense fog is densest, and the muddy streets are muddiest, near that leaden-headed old obstruction, appropriate ornament for the threshold of a leaden-headed old corporation, Temple Bar. And hard by Temple Bar, in Lincoln's Inn Hall, at the very heart of the fog, sits the Lord High Chancellor, in his High Court of Chancery. Never can there come fog too thick, never can there come mud and mire too deep, to assault with the groping and floundering condition which this high court of chancery, most pestilent of hoary sinners, holds this day in the sight of heaven and earth. On such an afternoon, if ever, the Lord High Chancellor ought to be sitting here, as here he is, with a foggy glory round his head, softly fenced in with crimson cloth and curtains, addressed by a large advocate with great whiskers, a little voice, and an interminable brief, and outwardly directing his contemplation to the lantern in the roof, where he can see nothing but fog. On such an afternoon some score of members of the High Court of Chancery Bar ought to be, as here they are, mistily engaged in one of the ten thousand stages of an endless cause, tripping one another up on slippery precedents, groping knee-deep in technicalities, running their goat-hair and horse-hair warded heads against walls of words, and making a pretense of equity with serious faces, as players might. On such an afternoon the various solicitors in the cause, some two or three of whom have inherited it from their fathers, who made a fortune by it, ought to be, as are they not, ranged in a line in a long matted well, but you might look in vain for truth at the bottom of it. Between the registrar's red table and the silk gowns, with bills, cross-bills, answers, rejoinders, injunctions, affidavits, issues, references to masters, masters' reports, mountains of costly nonsense piled before them. Well may the court be dim, with wasting candles here and there. Well may the fog hang heavy in it, as if it would never get out. Well may the stained-glass windows lose their colour, and admit no light of day into the place. 
well may the uninitiated from the streets who peep in through the glass panes of the door be deterred from entrance by its owlish aspect and by the drawl languidly echoing to the roof from the padded days where the lord high chancellor looks into the lantern that has no light in it and where the attendant wigs are all stuck in a fog-bank this is the court of chancery which has its decaying houses and its blighted lands in every shire which has its worn-out lunatic in every madhouse and its dead in every churchyard which has its ruined suitor with his slipshod heels and threadbare dress borrowing and begging through the round of every man's acquaintance which gives to moneyed might the means abundantly of wearying out the right which so exhausts finances patience courage hope so overthrows the brain and breaks the heart that there is not an honourable man among its practitioners who would not give who does not often give the warning suffer any wrong that can be done you rather than come here who happened to be in the lord chancellor's court this murky afternoon besides the lord chancellor the counsellor in the cause two or three counsel who are never in any cause and the well of solicitors before mentioned there is the registrar below the judge in wig and gown and there are two or three maces or petty bags or privy purses or whatever they may be in legal court suits these are all yawning for no crumb of amusement ever falls from jarndyce and jarndyce the cause in hand which was squeezed dry years upon years ago the shorthand writers the reporters of the court and the reporters of the newspapers invariably decamp with the rest of the regulars when jarndyce and jarndyce comes on their places are a blank standing on a seat at the side of the hall the better to peer into the curtained sanctuary is a little mad old woman in a squeezed bonnet who was always in court from its sitting to its rising and always expecting some incomprehensible judgment to be given in her favour some say she really is or was a party to a suit but no one knows for certain because no one cares she carries some small litter in a reticule which she calls her documents principally consisting of paper matches and dry lavender a sallow prisoner has come up in custody for the half-dozenth time to make a personal application to purge himself of his contempt which being a solitary surviving executor who has fallen into a state of conglomeration about accounts of which it is not pretended that he had ever any knowledge he is not at all likely ever to do in the meantime his prospects in life are ended another ruined suitor who periodically appears from shropshire and breaks out into efforts to address the chancellor at the close of the day's business and who can by no means be made to understand that the chancellor is legally ignorant of his existence after making it desolate for a quarter of a century plants himself in a good place and keeps an eye on the judge ready to call out my lord in a voice of sonorous complaint on the instant of his rising a few lawyers clerks and others who know this suitor by sight linger on the chance of his furnishing some fun and enlivening the dismal weather a little jarndyce and jarndyce drones on this scarecrow of a suit has in course of time become so complicated that no man alive knows what it means the parties to it understand it least but it has been observed that no two chancery lawyers can talk about it for five minutes without coming to a total disagreement as to all the premises innumerable children have been born into the cause innumerable young people have married into it innumerable old people have died out of it 
scores of persons have deliriously found themselves made parties in Jarndyce and Jarndyce without knowing how or why. Whole families have inherited legendary hatreds with the suit. The little plaintiff or defendant, who has promised a new rocking-horse when Jarndyce and Jarndyce should be settled, has grown up, possessed himself of a real horse, and trotted away into the other world. Fair wards of court have faded into mothers and grandmothers. A long procession of chancellors has come in and gone out. The legion of bills in the suit have been transformed into mere bills of mortality. There are not three Jarndyces left upon the earth, perhaps, since old Tom Jarndyce, in despair, blew his brains out at a coffee-house in Chancery Lane. But Jarndyce and Jarndyce still drags its dreary length before the court, perennially hopeless. Jarndyce and Jarndyce has passed into a joke. That is the only good that has ever come of it. It has been death to many, but it is a joke in the profession. Every master in Chancery has had a reference out of it. Every Chancellor was in it, for somebody or other, when he was counsel at the bar. Good things have been said about it by blue-nosed, bulbous-shoed old benchers in select port-wine committee after dinner in hall. Article clerks have been in the habit of fleshing their legal wit upon it. The last Lord Chancellor handled it neatly when, correcting Mr. Blowers, the eminent silk gown, who said that such a thing might happen when the sky rained potatoes, he observed, or when we get through jarndyce and jarndyce, Mr. Blowers, a pleasantry that particularly tickled the maces, bags, and purses. How many people out of the suit jarndyce and jarndyce has stretched forth its unwholesome hand to spoil and corrupt would be a very wide question." From the master upon whose impaling files reams of dusty warrants in Jarndyce and Jarndyce have grimly writhed into many shapes, down to the copying clerk in the six clerk's office, who has copied his tens of thousands of chancery folio pages under that eternal heading, no man's nature has been made better by it. In trickery, evasion, procrastination, spoliation, botheration, under false pretences of all sorts, there are influences that can never come to good. The very solicitor's boys who have kept the wretched suitors at bay by protesting time out of mind that Mr. Chisel, Mizzle, or otherwise was particularly engaged and had appointments until dinner, may have got an extra moral twist and shuffle into themselves out of Jarndyce and Jarndyce. The receiver in the cause has acquired a goodly sum of money by it, but has acquired, too, a distrust of his own mother and a contempt for his own kind. Chisel, Mizzle, and otherwise, have lapsed into a habit of vaguely promising themselves that they will look into that outstanding little matter and see what can be done for Drizzle, who is not well used, when Jarndyce and Jarndyce shall be got out of the office. Shirking and sharking in all their many varieties have been sown broadcast by the ill-fated cause, and even those who have contemplated its history from the outermost circle of such evil have been insensibly tempted into a loose way of letting bad things alone to take their own bad course, and a loose belief that if the world go wrong, it was in some off-hand manner never meant to go right. Thus in the midst of the mud, and at the heart of the fog, sits the Lord High Chancellor in his high court of chancery. "'Mr. Tangle,' says the Lord High Chancellor, latterly something restless under the eloquence of that learned gentleman. "'Blood,' says Mr. Tangle. Mr. Tangle knows more of John Dice and John Dice than anybody. He is famous for it. 
supposed never to have read anything else since he left school. "'Have you nearly concluded your argument?' "'Blood. No. Variety of points. Feel it my duty to smit. Bloodship.' is the reply that slides out of Mr. Tangle. "'Several members of the bar are still to be heard, I believe,' says the Chancellor, with a slight smile. Eighteen of Mr. Tangle's learned friends, each armed with a little summary of eighteen hundred sheets, bob up like eighteen hammers in a pianoforte, make eighteen bows, and drop into their eighteen places of obscurity. "'We will proceed with the hearing on Wednesday fortnight,' says the Chancellor, for the question at issue is only a question of costs, a mere bud on the forest tree of the parent suit, and really will come to a settlement one of these days. The Chancellor rises, the bar rises, the prisoner is brought forward in a hurry, the man from Shropshire cries, "'My lord!' Maces, bags, and purses indignantly proclaim silence, and frown at the man from Shropshire. "'In reference,' proceeds the Chancellor, still on Jarndyce and Jarndyce, "'to the young girl—big ledship's pardon—boy,' says Mr. Tangle prematurely. "'In reference,' proceeds the Chancellor with extra distinctness, to the young girl and boy, the two young people, Mr. Tangle crushed, whom I directed to be in attendance to-day, and who are now in my private room, I will see them and satisfy myself as to the expediency of making the order for their residing with their uncle. Mr. Tangle on his legs again. Beg Lordship's pardon. Dead. With the... Chancellor looking through his double eyeglass at the papers on his desk. A grandfather. Beg Lordship's pardon. Victim of rash action. Brains. Suddenly a very little counsel, with a terrific bass voice, arises, fully inflated, in the back settlements of the fog, and says, Will your Lordship allow me? I appear for him. He is a cousin several times removed. I am not at the moment prepared to inform the court in what exact remove he is a cousin, but he is a cousin. Leaving this address, delivered like a sepulchral message, ringing in the rafters of the roof, the very little counsel drops, and the fog knows him no more. Everybody looks for him. Nobody can see him. I will speak with both the young people says the Chancellor anew, and satisfy myself on the subject of their residing with their cousin. I will mention the matter to-morrow morning, when I take my seat. The Chancellor is about to bow to the bar, when the prisoner is presented. Nothing can possibly come of the prisoner's conglomeration but his being sent back to prison, which is soon done. The man from Shropshire ventures another remonstrative. "'My lord!' But the Chancellor, being aware of him, has dexterously vanished. Everybody else quickly vanishes, too. A battery of blue bags is loaded with heavy charges of papers, and carried off by clerks. The little mad old woman marches off with her documents. The empty court is locked up. If all the injustice it has committed, and all the misery it has caused, could only be locked up with it— and the whole burnt away in a great funeral pyre. 
why so much the better for other parties than the parties in Jarndyce and Jarndyce. End of chapter 1「Two of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Two. In Fashion. It is but a glimpse of the world of fashion that we want on this same miry afternoon. It is not so unlike the Court of Chancery, but that we may pass from the one scene to the other as the crow flies. Both the world of fashion and the court of chancery are things of precedent and usage, oversleeping Rip Van Winkles, who have played at strange games through a deal of thundery weather, sleeping beauties whom the night will wake one day, when all the stopped spits in the kitchen shall begin to turn prodigiously. It is not a large world, relatively even to this world of ours which has its limits too, as your Highness shall find when you have made the tour of it and are come to the brink of the void beyond it is a very little speck. There is much good in it, there are many good and true people in it, it has its appointed place. But the evil of it is that it is a world wrapped up in too much jeweller's cotton and fine wool, and cannot hear the rushing of the larger worlds, and cannot see them as they circle round the sun. It is a deadened world, and its growth is sometimes unhealthy for want of air." My Lady Dedlock has returned to her house in town for a few days previous to her departure for Paris, where her ladyship intends to stay some weeks, after which her movements are uncertain. The fashionable intelligence says so for the comfort of the Parisians, and it knows all fashionable things. To know things otherwise were to be unfashionable. My Lady Dedlock has been down at what she calls, in familiar conversation, her place in Lincolnshire. The waters are out in Lincolnshire. An arch of the bridge in the park has been sapped and sopped away. The adjacent low-lying ground for half a mile in breadth is a stagnant river, with melancholy trees for islands in it, and a surface punctured all over, all day long, with falling rain. My Lady Dedlock's place has been extremely dreary. The weather, for many a day and night, has been so wet that the trees seem wet through, and the soft loppings and prunings of the woodman's axe can make no crash or crackle as they fall. The deer, looking soaked, leave quagmires where they pass. The shot of a rifle loses its sharpness in the moist air, and its smoke moves in a tardy little cloud towards the green rise, coppice-topped, that makes a background for the falling rain. The view from my Lady Dedlock's own window is alternately a lead-coloured view, and a view in Indian ink. The vases on the stone terrace in the foreground catch the rain all day, and the heavy drops fall, drip, 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 upon the broad flagged pavement, called from old time the ghost's walk all night. On Sundays the little church in the park is mouldy, the oaken pulpit breaks out into a cold sweat, and there is a general smell and taste as of the ancient deadlocks in their graves. My Lady Deadlock, who is childless, looking out in the early twilight from her boudoir at a keeper's lodge, and seeing the light of a fire upon the latticed panes, and smoke rising from the chimney, and a child, chased by a woman, running out into the rain to meet the shining figure of a wrapped-up man coming through the gate, has been put quite out of temper, 
my lady dedlock says she has been bored to death therefore my lady dedlock has come away from the place in lincolnshire and has left it to the rain and the crows and the rabbits and the deer and the partridges and pheasants the pictures of the dedlocks past and gone have seemed to vanish into the damp walls and mere lowness of spirits as the housekeeper has passed along the old rooms shutting up the shutters and when they will next come forth again the fashionable intelligence which like the fiend is omniscient of the past and present but not the future cannot yet undertake to say sir leicester dedlock is only a baronet but there is no mightier baronet than he his family is as old as the hills and infinitely more respectable he has a general opinion that the world might get on without hills but would be done up without dedlocks he would on the whole admit nature to be a good idea a little low perhaps when not enclosed with a park fence but an idea dependent for its execution on your great county families he is a gentleman of strict conscience disdainful of all littleness and meanness and ready on the shortest notice to die any death you may please to mention rather than give occasion for the least impeachment of his integrity he is an honourable obstinate truthful high-spirited intensely prejudiced perfectly unreasonable man sir leicester is twenty years full measure older than my lady he will never see sixty-five again nor perhaps sixty-six nor yet sixty-seven he has a twist of the gout now and then and walks a little stiffly he is of a worthy presence with his light grey hair and whiskers his fine shirt frill his pure white waistcoat and his blue coat with bright buttons always buttoned he is ceremonious stately most polite on every occasion to my lady and holds her personal attractions in the highest estimation his gallantry to my lady which has never changed since he courted her is the one little touch of romantic fancy in him indeed he married her for love a whisper still goes about that she had not even family howbeit sir leicester had so much family that perhaps he had enough and could dispense with any more but she had beauty pride ambition insolent resolve and sense enough to portion out a legion of fine ladies wealth and station added to these soon floated her upward and for years now my lady dedlock has been at the centre of the fashionable intelligence and at the top of the fashionable tree how alexander wept when he had no more worlds to conquer everybody knows or has some reason to know by this time the matter having been rather frequently mentioned my lady dedlock having conquered her world fell not into the melting but rather into the freezing mood an exhausted composure a worn-out placidity an equanimity of fatigue not to be ruffled by interest or satisfaction are the trophies of her victory she is perfectly well-bred if she could be translated to heaven to-morrow she might be expected to ascend without any rapture she has beauty still and if it be not in its heyday it is not yet in its autumn she has a fine face originally of a character that would be rather called very pretty than handsome but improved into classicality by the acquired expression of her fashionable state her figure is elegant and has the effect of being tall not that she is so but that the most is made as the honourable bob stables has frequently asserted upon oath of all her points the same authority observes that she is perfectly got up and remarks in commendation of her hair especially that she is the best groomed woman in the whole stud 
With all her perfections on her head, my Lady Dedlock has come up from her place in Lincolnshire, hotly pursued by the fashionable intelligence, to pass a few days at her house in town, previous to her departure for Paris, where her ladyship intends to stay some weeks, after which her movements are uncertain. And at her house in town, upon this muddy, murky afternoon, presents himself an old-fashioned old gentleman attorney at law and eke solicitor of the High Court of Chancery, who has the honour of acting as legal adviser of the deadlocks, and has as many cast-iron boxes in his office with that name outside, as if the present baronet were the coin of the conjurer's trick, and were constantly being juggled through the whole set." Across the hall, and up the stairs, and along the passages, and through the rooms, which are very brilliant in the season, and very dismal out of it, fairy land to visit, but a desert to live in, the old gentleman is conducted by a mercury in powder to my lady's presence. The old gentleman is rusty to look at, but is reputed to have made good thrift out of aristocratic marriage settlements and aristocratic wills, and to be very rich. He is surrounded by a mysterious halo of family confidences, of which he is known to be the silent depository. There are noble mausoleums rooted for centuries in retired glades of parks, among the growing timber and the fern, which perhaps hold fewer noble secrets than walk abroad among men, shut up in the breast of Mr. Tulkinghorn. He is of what is called the old school a phrase generally meaning any school that seems never to have been young, and wears knee-breeches, tied with ribbons, and gaiters or stockings. One peculiarity of his black clothes and of his black stockings, be they silk or worsted, is that they never shine. Mute, close, irresponsive to any glancing light, his dress is like himself. He never converses when not professionally consulted. He is found sometimes speechless, but quite at home, at corners of dinner-tables in great country houses, and near doors of drawing-rooms, concerning which the fashionable intelligence is eloquent, where everybody knows him, and where half the peerage stops to say, "'How do you do, Mr. Tulkinghorn?' He receives these salutations with gravity, and buries them along with the rest of his knowledge. Sir Lester Dedlock is with my lady, and is happy to see Mr. Tulkinghorn. There is an air of prescription about him, which is always agreeable to Sir Leicester. He receives it as a kind of tribute. He likes Mr. Tulkinghorn's dress. There is a kind of tribute in that, too. It is eminently respectable, and likewise, in a general way, retainer-like. It expresses, as it were, the steward of the legal mysteries, the butler of the legal cellar of the deadlocks. Has Mr. Tulkinghorn any idea of this himself? It may be so, or it may not, but there is this remarkable circumstance to be noted in everything associated with my Lady Dedlock as one of a class, as one of the leaders and representatives of her little world. She supposes herself to be an inscrutable, being quite out of the reach and ken of ordinary mortals, seeing herself in her glass where indeed she looks so. Yet every dim little star revolving about her, from her maid to the manager of the Italian opera, knows her weaknesses, prejudices, follies, haughtinesses, and caprices, and lives upon as accurate a calculation, and as nice a measure of her moral nature, as her dressmaker takes of her physical proportions. Is a new dress, a new custom, a new singer, a new dancer, a new form of jewellery, a new dwarf or giant, a new chapel, a new anything, to be set up? There are deferential people in a dozen callings, 
whom my Lady Dedlock suspects of nothing but prostration before her, who can tell you how to manage her as if she were a baby, who do nothing but nurse her all their lives, who, humbly affecting to follow with profound subservience, lead her and her whole troop after them, who in hooking one hook all, and bear them off, as Lemuel Gulliver bore away the stately fleet of the majestic Lilliput. If you want to address our people, sir, say Blaze and Sparkle, the jewellers, meaning by our people, Lady Dedlock, and the rest, you must remember that you are not dealing with the general public. You must hit our people in their weakest place, and their weakest place is such a place. To make this article go down, gentlemen, say Sheen and Gloss, the mercers, to their friends the manufacturers, you must come to us because we know where to have the fashionable people, and we can make it fashionable. If you want to get this print upon the tables of my high connection, sir, says Mr. Sladdery, the librarian, or if you want to get this dwarf or giant into the houses of my high connection, sir, or if you want to secure to this entertainment the patronage of my high connection, sir, you must leave it, if you please, to me, for I have been accustomed to study the leaders of my high connection, sir, and I may tell you without vanity that I can turn them round my finger.' in which Mr. Sladdery, who is an honest man, does not exaggerate at all. Therefore, while Mr. Tulkinghorn may not know what is passing in the deadlock mind at present, it is very possible that he may. "'My lady's cause has been again before the Chancellor, has it, Mr. Tulkinghorn?' says Sir Leicester, giving him his hand. "'Yes, it has been on again to-day.' Mr. Tulkinghorn replies, making one of his quiet bows to my lady, who is on a sofa near the fire, shading her face with a hand-screen. "'It would be useless to ask,' says my lady, with the dreariness of the place in Lincolnshire still upon her, "'whether anything has been done.' "'Nothing that you would call anything has been done to-day,' replies Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'Nor ever will be.' says my lady. Sir Leicester has no objection to an interminable chancery suit. It is a slow, expensive, British, constitutional kind of thing. To be sure, he has not a vital interest in the suit in question, her part in which was the only property my lady brought him. And he has a shadowy impression that for his name, the name of Dedlock, to be in a cause, and not in the title of that cause, is a most ridiculous accident." but he regards the court of chancery even if it should involve an occasional delay of justice and a trifling amount of confusion as a something devised in conjunction with a variety of other somethings by the perfection of human wisdom for the eternal settlement humanly speaking of everything and he is upon the whole of a fixed opinion that to give the sanction of his countenance to any complaints respecting it would be to encourage some person in the lower classes to rise up somewhere like what tyler "'As a few fresh affidavits have been put upon the file,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, "'and as they are short, and as I proceed upon the troublesome principle of begging leave to possess my clients with any new proceedings in a cause—' "'Cautious man, Mr. Tulkinghorn, taking no more responsibility than necessary—and further, as I see you are going to Paris, I have brought them in my pocket.' Sir Leicester was going to Paris, too, by the by but the delight of the fashionable intelligence was in his lady. Mr. Tulkinghorn takes out his papers, asks permission to place them on a golden talisman of a table at my lady's elbow, puts on his spectacles, and begins to read by the light of a shaded lamp. 
"'In Chancery, between John Jarndyce,' my lady interrupts, requesting him to miss as many of the formal horrors as he can. Mr. Tulkinghorn glances over his spectacles, and begins again lower down. My lady carelessly and scornfully abstracts her attention. Sir Leicester, in a great chair, looks at the file, and appears to have a stately liking for the legal repetitions and prolixities as ranging among the national bulwarks. It happens that the fire is hot where my lady sits, and that the hand-screen is more beautiful than useful, being priceless but small. My lady, changing her position, sees the papers on the table, looks at them nearer, looks at them nearer still, asks impulsively, "'Who copied that?' Mr. Tulkinghorn stops short, surprised by my lady's animation and her unusual tone. "'Is it what you people call law-hand?' she asks, looking full at him in her careless way again, and toying with her screen. "'Not quite. Probably.' Mr. Tulkinghorn examines it as he speaks. "'The legal character which it has was acquired after the original hand was formed. Why do you ask?' "'Anything to vary this detestable monotony. Oh, go on, do.' Mr. Tulkinghorn reads again. The heat is greater. My lady screens her face. Sir Leicester dozes, starts up suddenly, and cries, "'Eh? What do you say?' "'I say I am afraid,' says Mr. Tulkinghorn, who had risen hastily, "'that Lady Dedlock is ill.' "'Faint!' My lady murmurs with white lips. "'Only that. But it is like the faintness of death. Don't speak to me. Ring, and take me to my room.' Mr. Tulkinghorn retires into another chamber. Bells ring. Feet shuffle and patter. Silence ensues. Mercury at last begs Mr. Tulkinghorn to return. "'Better now,' quoth Sir Leicester, motioning the lawyer to sit down and read to him alone. "'I have been quite alarmed.' I never knew my lady swoon before. But the weather is extremely trying, and she really has been bored to death down at our place in Lincolnshire. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of Bleak House this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 3. A Progress. I have a great deal of difficulty in beginning to write my portion of these pages, for I know I am not clever. I always knew that. I can remember when I was a very little girl indeed, I used to say to my doll when we were alone together, now, Dolly, I am not clever, you know very well, and you must be patient with me like a dear. And so she used to sit propped up in a great armchair, with her beautiful complexion and rosy lips, staring at me, or not so much at me, I think, as at nothing, while I busily stitched away and told her every one of my secrets. My dear old doll, I was such a shy little thing that I seldom dared to open my lips and never dared to open my heart to anybody else. 
it almost made me cry to think what a relief it used to be to me when I came home from school of a day to run upstairs to my room and say, "'Oh, you dear, faithful Dolly, I knew you would be expecting me,' and then to sit down on the floor, leaning on the elbow of her great chair, and tell her all I had noticed since we parted. I had always rather a noticing way—not a quick way, oh no, a silent way of noticing what passed before me, and thinking I should like to understand it better. I have not by any means a quick understanding. When I love a person, very tenderly indeed, it seems to brighten, but even that may be my vanity. I was brought up from my earliest remembrance, like some of the princesses in the fairy stories, only I was not charming, by my godmother. At least I only knew her as such. She was a good, good woman. She went to church three times every Sunday, and to morning prayers on Wednesdays and Fridays, and to lectures whenever there were lectures, and never missed. She was handsome, and if she had ever smiled, would have been, I used to think, like an angel. But she never smiled. She was always grave and strict. She was so very good herself, I thought, that the badness of other people made her frown all her life. I felt so different from her even making every allowance for the differences between a child and a woman, I felt so poor, so trifling, and so far off, that I never could be unrestrained with her, no, could never even love her as I wished. It made me very sorry to consider how good she was, and how unworthy of her I was, and I used ardently to hope that I might have a better heart, and I talked it over very often with the dear old doll— but I never loved my godmother as I ought to have loved her, and as I felt I must have loved her if I had been a better girl. This made me, I dare say, more timid and retiring than I naturally was, and cast me upon Dolly as the only friend with whom I felt at ease. But something happened when I was still quite a little thing that helped it very much. I had never heard my mamma spoken of, I had never heard of my papa either, but I felt more interested about my mamma. I had never worn a black frock that I could recollect. I had never been shown my mamma's grave. I had never been told where it was. Yet I had never been taught to pray for any relation but my godmother. I had more than once approached this subject of my thoughts with Mrs. Rachel, our only servant, who took my light away when I was in bed another very good woman, but austere to me, and she had only said, Esther, good-night, and gone away and left me. Although there were seven girls at the neighbouring school where I was a day-boarder, and although they called me little Esther Summerson, I knew none of them at home. All of them were older than I, to be sure. I was the youngest there by a good deal, but there seemed to be some other separation between us besides that, and besides their being far more clever than I was, and knowing much more than I did. One of them, in the first week of my going to the school, I remember it very well, invited me home to a little party, to my great joy, but my godmother wrote a stiff letter declining for me, and I never went, and I never went out at all. It was my birthday— there were holidays at school on other birthdays, none on mine. There were rejoicings at home on other birthdays, as I knew from what I heard the girls relate to one another. There were none on mine. 
my birthday was the most melancholy day at home in the whole year. I have mentioned that unless my vanity should deceive me, as I know it may, for I may be very vain without suspecting it, though indeed I don't, my comprehension is quickened when my affection is. My disposition is very affectionate, and perhaps I might still feel such a wound, if such a wound could be received more than once, with the quickness of that birthday. Dinner was over, and my godmother and I were sitting at the table before the fire. The clock ticked, the fire clicked. Not another sound had been heard in the room or in the house for I don't know how long. I happened to look timidly up from my stitching, across the table at my godmother, and I saw in her face, looking gloomily at me, it would have been far better, little Esther, that you had had no birthday, that you had never been born. I broke out crying and sobbing, and I said, "'Oh, dear Godmother, tell me, pray do tell me, did Mamma die on my birthday?' "'No,' she returned. "'Ask me no more, child.' "'Oh, do pray tell me something of her. Do now, at last, dear Godmother, if you please. What did I do to her? How did I lose her?' why am i so different from other children and why is it my fault dear godmother no 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 don't go away oh speak to me i was in a kind of fright beyond my grief and i caught hold of her dress and was kneeling to her she had been saying all the while let me go but now she stood still her darkened face had such power over me that it stopped me in the midst of my vehemence. I put up my trembling little hand to clasp hers, or to beg her pardon with what earnestness I might, but withdrew it as she looked at me, and laid it on my fluttering heart. She raised me, sat in her chair, and standing me before her, said slowly, in a cold, low voice, I see her knitted brow and pointed finger. "'Your mother, Esther, is your disgrace, and you were hers. The time will come, and soon enough, when you will understand this better, and will feel it too, as no one save a woman can. I have forgiven her.' But her face did not relent. "'The wrong she did to me, and I say no more of it, though it was greater than you will ever know.' than any one will ever know but I, the sufferer. For yourself, unfortunate girl, orphaned and degraded from the first of these evil anniversaries, pray daily that the sins of others be not visited upon your head, according to what is written. Forget your mother, and leave all other people to forget her who will do her unhappy child that greatest kindness. Now, go." She checked me, however, as I was about to depart from her, so frozen as I was, and added this. Submission, self-denial, diligent work, are the preparations for a life begun with such a shadow on it. You are different from other children, Esther, because you were not born like them in common sinfulness and wrath. You are set apart. I went up to my room and crept to bed, and laid my doll's cheek against mine, wet with tears, and holding that solitary friend upon my bosom, cried myself to sleep. Imperfect as my understanding of my sorrow was, 
I knew that I had brought no joy at any time to anybody's heart, and that I was to no one upon earth what Dolly was to me. Oh, dear, dear, to think how much time we passed alone together afterwards, and how often I repeated to the doll the story of my birthday, and confided to her that I would try as hard as ever I could to repair the fault I had been born with, of which I confessedly felt guilty and yet innocent, and would strive, as I grew up, to be industrious, contented, and kind-hearted, and to do some good to some one and win some love to myself if I could. I hope it is not self-indulgent to shed these tears as I think of it. I am very thankful, I am very cheerful, but I cannot quite help their coming to my eyes. <clears throat> there, I have wiped them away now, and can go on again properly. I felt the distance between my godmother and myself so much more after the birthday and felt so sensible of filling a place in her house which ought to have been empty, that I found her more difficult of approach, though I was fervently grateful to her in my heart than ever. I felt in the same way towards my school companions. I felt in the same way towards Mrs. Rachel, who was a widow, and, oh, towards her daughter, of whom she was proud, who came to see her once a fortnight. I was very retired and quiet, and tried to be very diligent. One sunny afternoon, when I had come home from school with my books and portfolio, watching my long shadow at my side, and as I was gliding upstairs to my room as usual, my godmother looked out from the parlour door and called me back. Sitting with her I found, which was very unusual indeed, a stranger, a portly, important-looking gentleman, dressed all in black, with a white cravat, large gold watch-seals, a pair of gold eyeglasses, and a large seal-ring upon his little finger. "'This,' said my godmother in an undertone, "'is the child.' Then she said in her naturally stern way of speaking, "'This is Esther, sir.' The gentleman put up his eyeglasses to look at me, and said, "'Come here, my dear.' He shook hands with me, and asked me to take off my bonnet, looking at me all the while. When I had complied, he said, "'Ah!' And afterwards, "'Yes!' And then, taking off his eyeglasses and folding them in a red case, and leaning back in his armchair, turning the case about in his two hands, he gave my godmother a nod. Upon that, my godmother said, "'You may go upstairs, Esther.' And I made him my curtsy, and left him. It must have been two years afterwards, and I was almost fourteen, when one dreadful night my godmother and I sat at the fireside. I was reading aloud, and she was listening. I had come down at nine o'clock, as I always did, to read the Bible to her, and was reading from St. John how our Saviour stooped down, writing with his finger in the dust, when they brought the sinful woman to him. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. I was stopped by my godmother's rising putting her hand to her head, and crying out in an awful voice from quite another part of the book, 
watch ye therefore lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping and what i say unto you i say unto all watch in an instant while she stood before me repeating these words she fell down on the floor i had no need to cry out her voice had sounded through the house and been heard in the street she was laid upon her bed for more than a week she lay there little altered outwardly with her old handsome resolute frown that i so well knew carved upon her face many and many a time in the day and in the night with my head upon the pillow by her that my whispers might be plainer to her i kissed her thanked her prayed for her asked her for her blessing and forgiveness entreated her to give me the least sign that she knew or heard me no 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 her face was immovable to the very last and even afterwards her frown remained unsoftened on the day after my poor good godmother was buried the gentleman in black with the white neckcloth reappeared i was sent for by mrs rachel and found him in the same place as if he had never gone away my name is kenge he said you may remember it my child kenge and carboy lincoln's inn i replied that i remembered to have seen him once before pray be seated here near me don't distress yourself it's of no use mrs rachel i needn't inform you who were acquainted with the late miss barbary's affairs that her means die with her and that this young lady now her aunt is dead my aunt sir it is really of no use carrying on a deception when no object is to be gained by it said mr kenge smoothly aunt in fact though not in law don't distress yourself don't weep don't tremble mrs rachel our young friend has no doubt heard of uh, the uh, john dice and john dice never said mrs rachel is it possible pursued mr kenge putting up his eyeglasses that our young friend i beg you won't distress yourself never heard of john dice and john dice i shook my head wondering even what it was not of john dice and john dice said mr kenge looking over his glasses at me and softly turning the case about and about as if he were petting something not of one of the greatest chancery suits known not of jarndyce and jarndyce the uh, in itself a monument of chancery practice in which i would say every difficulty every contingency every masterly fiction every form of procedure known in that court is represented over and over again it is a cause that could not exist out of this free and great country i should say that the aggregate of costs in john dice and john dice mrs rachel i was afraid he addressed himself to her because i appeared inattentive amounts at the present hour to from sixty to seventy thousand pounds 
said Mr. Kenge, leaning back in his chair. I felt very ignorant, but what could I do? I was so entirely unacquainted with the subject that I understood nothing about it even then. "'And she really never heard of the cause,' said Mr. Kenge. "'Surprising!' "'Miss Barbary, sir,' returned Mrs. Rachel, "'who is now among the seraphim.' "'I hope so, I am sure,' said Mr. Kenge politely. "'Wished Esther only to know what would be serviceable to her, "'and she knows from any teaching she has had here nothing more.' "'Well,' said Mr. Kenge, "'upon the whole, very proper. "'Now, to the point,' addressing me, "'Miss Barbary, your sole relation, "'in fact, that is, for I am bound to observe "'that in law you had none, "'being deceased, and it naturally not being to be expected, "'that Mrs. Rachel—' "'Oh, dear, no,' said Mrs. Rachel quickly. "'Quite so,' assented Mr. Kenge. "'that Mrs. Rachel should charge herself with your maintenance and support. "'I beg you won't distress yourself. "'You are in a position to receive the renewal of an offer "'which I was instructed to make to Miss Barbary some two years ago, "'and which, though rejected then, was understood to be renewable "'under the lamentable circumstances that have since occurred.' "'Now, if I avow that I represent, in Jarndyce and Jarndyce and otherwise, a highly humane, but at the same time singular man, shall I compromise myself by any stretch of my professional caution?' said Mr. Kenge, leaning back in his chair again and looking calmly at us both. He appeared to enjoy beyond everything the sound of his own voice— I couldn't wonder at that, for it was mellow and full, and gave great importance to every word he uttered. He listened to himself with obvious satisfaction, and sometimes gently beat time to his own music with his head, or rounded a sentence with his hand. I was very much impressed by him, even then. Before I knew that, he formed himself on the model of a great lord, who was his client, and that he was generally called Conversation Kenge. "'Mr. Jarndyce,' he pursued, "'being aware of the, I would say, desolate position of our young friend, "'offers to place her at a first-rate establishment, "'where her education shall be completed, "'where her comfort shall be secured, "'where her reasonable wants shall be anticipated, "'where she shall be eminently qualified to discharge her duty "'in that station of life unto which it has pleased, "'shall I say, Providence, to call her.' "'My heart was filled so full, "'both by what he said and, and by his affecting manner of saying it, "'that I was not able to speak, though I tried.' "'Mr. Jarndyce,' he went on, "'makes no condition, beyond expressing his expectation that our young friend will not, at any time, remove herself from the establishment in question without his knowledge and concurrence, that she will faithfully apply herself to the acquisition of those accomplishments upon the exercise of which she will be ultimately dependent.' 
that she will tread in the paths of virtue and honour, and the, uh, so forth. I was still less able to speak than before. Now, what does our young friend say? Proceeded Mr. Kenge. Take time, take time. I pause for her reply, but take time. What the destitute subject of such an offer tried to say, I need not repeat. What she did say, I could more easily tell, if it were worth the telling. What she felt, and will feel to her dying hour, I could never relate. This interview took place at Windsor, where I had passed, as far as I knew, my whole life. On that day week, amply provided with all necessaries, I left it inside the stage-coach for Reading. Mrs. Rachel was too good to feel any emotion at parting, but I was not so good, and wept bitterly. I thought that I ought to have known her better after so many years, and ought to have made myself enough of a favourite with her to make her sorry then. When she gave me one cold parting kiss upon my forehead, like a thaw-drop from the stone porch, it was a very frosty day, I felt so miserable and self-reproachful that I clung to her and told her it was my fault. I knew that she could say good-bye so easily. "'No, Esther,' she returned, "'it is your misfortune.' The coach was at the little lawn-gate. We had not come out until we heard the wheels, and thus I left her with a sorrowful heart. She went in before my boxes were lifted to the coach-roof and shut the door. As long as I could see the house, I looked back at it from the window through my tears. My godmother had left Mrs. Rachel all the little property she possessed, and there was to be a sale, and an old hearth-rug with roses on it, which always seemed to me the first thing in the world I had ever seen, was hanging outside, in the frost and snow. A day or two before I had wrapped the dear old doll in her own shawl, and quietly laid her, I am half ashamed to tell it, in the garden earth under the tree that shaded my old window. I had no companion left but my bird, and him I carried with me in his cage. When the house was out of sight, I sat with my bird-cage in the straw at my feet, forward on the low seat, to look out of the high window, watching the frosty trees that were like beautiful pieces of spar, and the fields all smooth and white with last night's snow, and the sun so red but yielding so little heat, and the ice dark like metal where the skaters and the sliders had brushed the snow away. There was a gentleman in the coach who sat on the opposite seat and looked very large in a quantity of wrappings, but he sat gazing out of the other window and took no notice of me. I thought of my dead godmother, of the night when I read to her, of her frowning so fixedly and sternly in her bed, of the strange place I was going to, of the people I should find there, and what they would be like, and what they would say to me, when a voice in the coach gave me a terrible start. It said, "'What the devil are you crying for?' I was so frightened that I lost my voice, and could only answer in a whisper, "'Me, sir.' for, of course, I knew it must have been the gentleman in the quantity of wrappings, though he was still looking out of his window. "'Yes, you,' he said, turning round. 
"'I didn't know I was crying, sir,' I faltered. "'But you are,' said the gentleman. "'Look here.' He came quite opposite to me from the other corner of the coach, brushed one of his large furry cuffs across my eyes, but without hurting me, and showed me that it was wet. "'There! Now you know you are,' he said. "'Don't you?' "'Yes, sir,' I said. "'And what are you crying for?' said the gentleman. "'Don't you want to go there?' "'Where, sir?' "'Where?' "'Why, wherever you are going,' said the gentleman. I- "'I'm very glad to go there, sir,' I answered. "'Well, then, look glad,' said the gentleman. I thought he was very strange, or at least that what I could see of him was very strange, for he was wrapped up to the chin, and his face was almost hidden in a fur cap with broad fur straps at the side of his head, fastened under his chin. But I was composed again, and not afraid of him, so I told him that I thought I must have been crying because of my godmother's death, and because of Mrs. Rachel's not being sorry to part with me. "'Confound Mrs. Rachel,' said the gentleman. "'Let her fly away in a high wind on a broomstick.' I began to be really afraid of him now, and looked at him with the greatest astonishment. But I thought that he had pleasant eyes, although he kept on muttering to himself in an angry manner, and calling Mrs. Rachel names. After a little while he opened his outer wrapper, which appeared to me large enough to wrap up the whole coach, and put his arm down into a deep pocket in the side. "'Now look here,' he said, "'in this paper—' which was nicely folded, is a piece of the best plum-cake that can be got for money, sugar on the outside an inch thick, like fat on mutton-chops. Here's a little pie, a gem this is, both for size and quality, made in France. And what do you suppose it's made of? Livers of fat geese. There's a pie. Now, let's see you eat em. "'Thank you, sir,' I replied. "'Thank you very much indeed, but I hope you won't be offended. They are too rich for me.' "'Flawed again,' said the gentleman, which I didn't at all understand, and threw them both out of window. He did not speak to me any more, until he got out of the coach, a little way short of Reading, when he advised me to be a good girl, and to be studious, and shook hands with me. I must say I was relieved by his departure. We left him at a milestone. I often walked past it afterwards, and never for a long time without thinking of him, and half expecting to meet him. But I never did, and so as time went on he passed out of my mind. When the coach stopped, a very neat lady looked up at the window, and said, "'Miss Donny?' "'No, ma'am. Esther Summerson.' "'That is quite right.' said the lady. "'Miss Donny.' I now understood that she introduced herself by that name, and begged Miss Donny's pardon for my mistake, and pointed out my boxes at her request. Under the direction of a very neat maid, they were put outside a very small green carriage, and then Miss Donny, 
the maid and I got inside and were driven away. "'Everything is ready for you, Esther,' said Miss Donny, "'and the scheme of your pursuits has been arranged in exact accordance with the wishes of your guardian, Mr. Jarndyce.' "'Of—did you say, ma'am?' "'Of your guardian, Mr. Jarndyce,' said Miss Donny. I was so bewildered that Miss Donny thought the cold had been too severe for me, and lent me her smelling-bottle. "'Do you know my guardian, Mr. Jarndyce, ma'am?' I asked, after a good deal of hesitation. "'Not personally, Esther,' said Miss Donny. "'Merely through his solicitors, Mrs. Kenge and Carboy of London. A very superior gentleman, Mr. Kenge. Truly eloquent indeed. Some of his periods quite majestic.' I felt this to be very true, but was too confused to attend to it. Our speedy arrival at our destination, before I had time to recover myself, increased my confusion, and I never shall forget the uncertain and the unreal air of everything at Greenleaf, Miss Donny's house, that afternoon. But I soon became used to it. I was so adapted to the routine of Greenleaf before long, that I seemed to have been there a great while, and almost to have dreamed, rather than really, lived my old life at my godmother's. Nothing could be more precise, exact, and orderly than Greenleaf. There was a time for everything, all round the dial of the clock, and everything was done at its appointed moment. We were twelve boarders, and there were two Miss Donnies, twins. It was understood that I would have to depend, by and by, on my qualifications as a governess, and I was not only instructed in everything that was taught at Greenleaf, but was very soon engaged in helping to instruct others. Although I was treated in every other respect like the rest of the school, this single difference was made in my case from the first. As I began to know more, I taught more, and so in course of time I had plenty to do, which I was very fond of doing, because it made the dear girls fond of me. At last, whenever a new pupil came who was a little downcast and unhappy, she was so sure, indeed I don't know why, to make a friend of me, that all newcomers were confided to my care. They said I was so gentle, but I am sure they were. I often thought of the resolution I had made on my birthday, to try to be industrious, contented, and, and true-hearted, and to do some good to some one, and win some love if I could. And indeed, indeed, I felt almost ashamed to have done so little, and have won so much. I passed at Greenleaf six happy, quiet years. I never saw in any face there, thank heaven, on my birthday, that it would have been better if I had never been born. When the day came round, it brought me so many tokens of affectionate remembrance that my room was beautiful with them from New Year's Day to Christmas. In those six years I had never been away, except on visits at holiday time in the neighbourhood. After the first six months or so, I had taken Miss Donny's advice, in reference to the propriety of writing to Mr. Kenge, to say that I was happy and grateful, and with her approval I had written such a letter— I had received a formal answer acknowledging its receipt, and saying, We note the contents thereof, which shall be duly communicated to our client. After that I sometimes heard Miss Donny and her sister mention how regular my accounts were paid, and about twice a year I ventured to write a similar letter. 
I always received by return of post exactly the same answer in the same round hand, with the signature of Kenge and Carboy in another writing, which I supposed to be Mr. Kenge's. It seemed so curious to me to be obliged to write all this about myself, as if this narrative were the narrative of my life, but my little body will soon fall into the background now. Six quiet years, I find I am saying it for the second time, I had passed at Greenleaf, seeing in those around me, as it might be in a looking-glass, every stage of my own growth and change there, when, one November morning, I received this letter. I omit the date. Old Square, Lincoln's Inn. Madam, Jarndyce and Jarndyce. Our client, Mr. Jarndyce, being about to receive into his house, under an order of the Court of Chancery, a ward of the Court in this cause, for whom he wishes to secure an eligible companion, directs us to inform you that he will be glad of your services in the aforesaid capacity. We have arranged for your being forwarded, carriage-free, per eight o'clock coach from Reading, on Monday morning next, to White Horse Cellar, Piccadilly, London, where one of our clerks will be in waiting to convey you to our office as above. We are, madam, your obedient servants, Kenge and Carboy. Miss Esther Summerson. Oh, never, never, never shall I forget the emotion this letter caused in the house. It was so tender in them to care so much for me. It was so gracious in that father who had not forgotten me to have made my orphan way so smooth and easy, and to have inclined so many youthful natures towards me, that I could hardly bear it. Not that I would have had them less sorry, I am afraid not, but the pleasure of it, and the pain of it, and the pride and joy of it, and the humble regret of it was so blended, that my heart seemed almost breaking, while it was full of rapture. The letter gave me only five days' notice of my removal, when every minute added to the proofs of love and kindness that were given me in those five days, and when at last the morning came, and when they took me through all the rooms that I might see them for the last time, and when some cried, "'Esther, dear, say good-bye to me here at my bedside, where you first spoke so kindly to me,' and when others asked me only to write their names, with Esther's love, and when they all surrounded me with their parting presents, and clung to me weeping, and cried, "'What shall we do when dear, dear Esther's gone?' and when I tried to tell them how forbearing and how good they had all been to me, and how I blessed and thanked them every one, what a heart I had! And when the two Miss Donnies grieved as much to part with me as the least among them, and when the maids said, Bless you, Miss, wherever you go, and when the ugly, lame old gardener, whom I thought had hardly noticed me in all those years, came panting after the coach to give me a little nosegay of geraniums, and told me I had been the light of his eyes, indeed, the old man said so. What a heart I had then! and could i help it if with all this and the coming to the little school and the unexpected sight of the poor children outside waving their hats and bonnets to me and of a grey-haired gentleman and lady whose daughter i had helped to teach and at whose house i had visited who were said to be the proudest people in all that country caring for nothing but calling out good-bye esther may you be very happy 
could I help it if I was quite bowed down in the coach by myself, and said, "'Oh, I am so thankful, I am so thankful, many times over.' But, of course, I soon considered that I must not take tears where I was going after all that had been done for me. Therefore, of course, I made myself sob less, and persuaded myself to be quiet, by saying very often, "'Esther, now you really must. This will not do.' I cheered myself up pretty well at last, though I am afraid I was longer about it than I ought to have been, and when I had cooled my eyes with lavender water, it was time to watch for London. I was quite persuaded that we were there when we were ten miles off, and when we really were there, that we should never get there. However, when we began to jolt upon a stone pavement, and particularly when every other conveyance seemed to be running into us, and we seemed to be running into every other conveyance, I began to believe that we really were approaching the end of our journey. Very soon afterwards we stopped. A young gentleman, who had inked himself by accident, addressed me from the pavement, and said, "'I'm from Kenjin Carboys, Miss, of Lincoln's Inn.' "'If you please, sir,' said I. He was very obliging, and as he handed me into a fly, after superintending the removal of my boxes, I asked him whether there was a great fire anywhere, for the streets were so full of dense brown smoke that scarcely anything was to be seen. "'How oh dear, no, miss,' he said. "'This is a London particular.' I had never heard of such a thing. "'A fog, miss,' said the young gentleman. "'Oh, indeed,' said I. We drove slowly through the dirtiest and darkest streets that ever were seen in the world, I thought, and in such a distracting state of confusion that I wondered how the people kept their senses, until we passed into sudden quietude under an old gateway, and drove on through a silent square, until we came to an odd nook in a corner where there was an entrance up a steep, broad flight of stairs, like an entrance to a church and there really was a churchyard outside under some cloisters, for I saw the gravestones from the staircase window. This was Kenge and Carboys. The young gentleman showed me through an outer office into Mr. Kenge's room. There was no one in it, and politely put an armchair for me by the fire. He then called my attention to a little looking-glass hanging from a nail on one side of the chimney-piece. "'In case you should wish to look at yourself, miss, after the journey, as you're going before the Chancellor, not that it's requisite, I'm sure,' said the young gentleman civilly. "'Going before the Chancellor?' I said, startled for a moment. "'Only a matter of form, miss,' returned the young gentleman. "'Mr. Kenge is in court now. He left his compliments, and would you partake of some refreshment?' There were biscuits and a decanter of wine on a small table. "'And look over the paper,' which the young gentleman gave me as he spoke. He then stirred the fire, and left me. Everything was so strange, the stranger from its being night in the daytime, the candles burning with a white flame and looking raw and cold, that I read the words in the newspaper without knowing what they meant, and found myself reading the same words repeatedly. As it was of no use going on in that way, I put the paper down, took a peep at my bonnet in the glass to see if it was neat, and looked at the room, which was not half-lighted, and at the shabby, dusty tables, and at the piles of writings, and at a bookcase full of the most inexpressive-looking books that ever had anything to say for themselves. 
Then I went on, thinking, 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 and the fire went on, burning, 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 and the candles went on, flickering and guttering, and there were no snuffers, until the young gentleman by and by brought a very dirty pair for two hours. At last Mr. Kenge came. He was not altered, but he was surprised to see how altered I was, and appeared quite pleased. "'As you are going to be the companion of the young lady who is now in the Chancellor's private room, Miss Summerson,' he said, "'we thought it well that you should be in attendance also. You will not be discomposed by the Lord Chancellor, I dare say?' "'No, sir,' I said. "'I don't think I shall.' really not seeing on consideration why I should be. So Mr. Kenge gave me his arm, and we went round the corner, under a colonnade, and in at a side door. And so we came along a passage into a comfortable sort of room, where a young lady and a young gentleman were standing near a great loud roaring fire. A screen was interposed between them and it, and they were leaning on the screen, talking. They both looked up when I came in, and I saw in the young lady, with the fire shining upon her, such a beautiful girl, with such rich golden hair, such soft blue eyes, and such a bright, innocent, trusting face. "'Miss Ada,' said Mr. Kenge, "'this is Miss Summerson.' She came to meet me with a smile of welcome, and her hand extended, but seemed to change her mind in a moment, and kissed me. In short, she had such a natural, captivating, winning manner, that in a few minutes we were sitting in the window-seat, with the light of the fire upon us, talking together, as free and happy as could be. Oh, what a load off my mind! It was so delightful to know that she could confide in me and like me. It was so good of her, and so encouraging to me. The young gentleman was her distant cousin, she told me, and his name Richard Carstone. He was a handsome youth, with an ingenuous face and a most engaging laugh, and after she had called him up to where we sat, he stood by us in the light of the fire, talking gaily like a light-hearted boy. He was very young, not more than nineteen then, if quite so much, but nearly two years older than she was. They were both orphans, and, what was very unexpected and curious to me, had never met before that day are all three coming together for the first time in such an unusual place was a thing to talk about and we talked about it and the fire which had left off roaring winked its red eyes at us as richard said like a drowsy old chancery lion we conversed in a low tone because a full-dressed gentleman in a bag wig frequently came in and out and when he did so we could hear a drawling sound in the distance which he said was one of the counsel in our case addressing the lord chancellor he told mr kenge that the chancellor would be up in five minutes and presently we heard a bustle and a tread of feet and mr kenge said that the court had risen and his lordship was in the next room the gentleman in the bag wig opened the door almost directly and requested mr kenge to come in upon that we all went into the next room mr kenge first with my darling it is so natural to me now that I can't help writing it, and there, plainly dressed in black and sitting in an armchair at a table near the fire, was his lordship, whose robe, trimmed with beautiful gold lace, was thrown upon another chair. He gave us a searching look as we entered, but his manner was both courtly and kind. 
the gentleman in the bag-wig laid bundles of papers on his lordship's table and his lordship silently selected one and turned over the leaves miss clare said the lord chancellor miss ada clare mr kenge presented her and his lordship begged her to sit down near him that he admired her and was interested by her even i could see in a moment it touched me that the home of such a beautiful young creature should be represented by that dry official place the lord high chancellor at his best appeared so poor a substitute for the love and pride of parents the jarndyce in question said the lord chancellor still turning over leaves is jarndyce of bleak house jarndyce of bleak house my lord said mr kenge a dreary name said the lord chancellor but not a dreary place at present my lord said mr kenge and bleak house said his lordship is in hertfordshire my lord mr jarndyce of bleak house is not married said his lordship he is not my lord said mr kenge a pause young mr richard carstone is uh, present said the lord chancellor glancing towards him richard bowed and stepped forward hmm. said the lord chancellor turning over more leaves mr jarndyce of bleak house my lord mr kenge observed in a low voice if i may venture to remind your lordship provides a suitable companion for for mr richard carstone i thought but i am not quite sure i heard his lordship say in an equally low voice and with a smile for miss ada clare this is the young lady miss summerson his lordship gave me an indulgent look and acknowledged my curtsey very graciously miss summerson is not related to any party in the cause i think no my lord mr kenge leant over before it was quite said and whispered his lordship with his eyes upon his papers listened nodded twice or thrice turned over more leaves and did not look towards me again until we were going away mr kenge now retired and richard with him to where i was near the door leaving my pet <laughs> it is so natural to me that again i can't help it sitting near the lord chancellor with whom his lordship spoke a little part asking her as she told me afterwards whether she had well reflected on the proposed arrangement and if she thought she would be happy under the roof of mr jarndyce of bleak house and why she thought so presently he rose courteously and released her and then he spoke for a minute or two with richard carstone not seated but standing and altogether with more ease and less ceremony as if he still knew though he was lord chancellor how to go straight to the candour of a boy very well said his lordship aloud i shall make the order mr jarndyce of bleak house has chosen so far as i may judge and this was when he looked at me a very good companion for the young lady and the arrangement altogether seems the best of which the circumstances admit he dismissed us pleasantly and we all went out very much obliged to him for being so affable and polite by which he had certainly lost no dignity but seemed to us to have gained some 
when we got under the colonnade mr kenge remembered that he must go back for a moment to ask a question and left us in the fog with the lord chancellor's carriage and servants waiting for him to come out well said richard carstone that's over and where do we go next miss summerson don't you know i said not in the least said he and don't you know my love i asked ada no said she don't you not at all said i we looked at one another half laughing at our being like the children in the wood when a curious little old woman in a squeezed bonnet and carrying a reticule came curtsying and smiling up to us with an air of great ceremony oh said she the wards in jarndyce very happy i am sure to have the honour it is a good omen for youth and hope and beauty when they find themselves in this place and don't know what's to come of it mad whispered richard not thinking she could hear him right mad young gentleman she returned so quickly that he was quite abashed i was a ward myself i was not mad at that time curtsying low and smiling between every little sentence i had youth and hope i believe beauty it matters very little now neither of the three served or saved me i have the honour to attend court regularly with my documents i expect a judgment shortly on the day of judgment i have discovered that the sixth seal mentioned in the revelations is the great seal it has been open a long time pray accept my blessing as ada was a little frightened i said to humour the poor old lady that we were much obliged to her yes she said mincingly i imagine so and here is conversation kenge with his documents how does your honourable worship do uh, quite well quite well now don't be troublesome that's a good soul said mr kenge leading the way back by no means said the poor old lady keeping up with ada and me anything but troublesome i shall confer estates on both which is not being troublesome i trust i expect a judgment shortly on the day of judgment this is a good omen for you accept my blessing she stopped at the bottom of the steep broad flight of stairs but we looked back as we went up and she was still there saying still with a curtsy and a smile between every little sentence youth and hope and beauty and chancery and conversation kenge ha pray accept my blessing end of chapter three chapter four of bleak house this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 4. Telescopic Philanthropy. We were to pass the night, Mr. Kenge told us when we arrived in his room, at Mrs. Jellyby's, and then he turned to me and said he took it for granted I knew who Mrs. Jellyby was. I really don't, sir i returned perhaps mr carstone or, or miss clare 
but no, they knew nothing whatever about Mrs. Jellyby. "'Indeed, Mrs. Jellyby,' said Mr. Kenge, standing with his back to the fire, and casting his eyes over the dusty hearth-rug, as if it were Mrs. Jellyby's biography, "'is a lady of very remarkable strength of character, who devotes herself entirely to the public.' She has devoted herself to an extensive variety of public subjects at various times, and is at present, until something else attracts her, devoted to the subject of Africa, with a view to the general cultivation of the coffee-berry, and the natives, and the happy settlement on the banks of the African rivers of our superabundant home population. Mr. Jarndyce, who is desirous to aid any work that is considered likely to be a good work, and who is much sought after by philanthropists, has, I believe, a very high opinion of Mrs. Jellyby. Mr. Kenge, adjusting his cravat, then looked at us. "'And Mr. Jellyby, sir?' suggested Richard. "'Ah, Mr. Jellyby,' said Mr. Kenge is a uh, i don't know that i can describe him to you better than by saying that he is the husband of mrs jellyby a nonentity sir said richard with a droll look i don't say that returned mr kenge gravely i can't say that indeed for I know nothing whatever of Mr. Jellyby. I never, to my knowledge, had the pleasure of seeing Mr. Jellyby. He may be a very superior man, but he is, so to speak, merged, merged in the more shining qualities of his wife. Mr. Kenge proceeded to tell us that as the road to Bleak House would have been very long, dark, and tedious on such an evening, and as we had been travelling already, Mr. Jarndyce had himself proposed this arrangement. A carriage would be at Mrs. Jellyby's to convey us out of town early in the forenoon of to-morrow. He then rang a little bell, and the young gentleman came in. Addressing him by the name of Guppy, Mr. Kenge inquired whether Miss Summerson's boxes and the rest of the baggage had been sent round. Mr. Guppy said yes, they had been sent round, and a coach was waiting to take us round, too, as soon as we pleased. "'Then it uh, only remains,' said Mr. Kenge, shaking hands with us, "'for me to express my lively satisfaction in uh, good day, Miss Clare, the arrangement this day concluded, and my good-bye to you, Miss Summerson, lively hope that it will conduce to the happiness, the glad to have had the honour of making your acquaintance, Mr. Carstone, welfare, the advantage in all points of view of all concerned. Guppy, see the party safely there. Where is there, Mr. Guppy? said Richard, as we went downstairs. No distance, said Mr. Guppy. "'Round in Thavies Inn, you know.' "'I—I can't say I know where it is, for I come from Winchester, and am strange in London.' "'Only round the corner,' said Mr. Guppy. "'We just twist up Chancery Lane, cut along Oban, and there we are in four minutes' time as near as a toucher. This is about a London particular. Now, ain't it, miss?' He seemed quite delighted with it on my account. "'The fog is very dense indeed,' said I. 
"'Not that it affects you, though, I'm sure,' said Mr. Guppy, putting up the steps. "'On the contrary, seems to do you good, miss, judging from your appearance.' I knew he meant well in paying me this compliment, so I laughed at myself for blushing at it when he had shut the door, and got upon the box, and we all three laughed and chatted about our inexperience and the strangeness of London, until we turned up under an archway to our destination, a narrow street of high houses like an oblong cistern to hold the fog. There was a confused little crowd of people, principally children, gathered about the house at which we stopped which had a tarnished brass plate on the door, with the inscription, Jellyby. "'Don't be frightened,' said Mr. Guppy, looking in at the coach-window. "'One of the young Jellybees been and got his head through the area railings.' "'Oh! Poor child!' said I. "'Let me out, if you please.' "'Pray be careful of yourself, miss. The young Jellybees are always up to something,' said Mr. Guppy. I made my way to the poor child.' who was one of the dirtiest little unfortunates I ever saw, and found him very hot and frightened and crying loudly, fixed by the neck between two iron railings, while a milkman and a beadle, with the kindest intentions possible, were endeavouring to drag him back by the legs, under a general impression that his skull was compressible by those means. As I found, after pacifying him, that he was a little boy with a naturally large head, I thought that perhaps where his head could go, his body could follow, and mentioned that the best mode of extrication might be to push him forward. This was so favourably received by the milkman and beadle, that he would immediately have been pushed into the area if I had not held his pinafore, while Richard and Mr. Guppy ran down through the kitchen to catch him when he should be released. At last he was happily got down without any accident, and then he began to beat Mr. Guppy with a hoop-stick in quite a frantic manner. Nobody had appeared belonging to the house except a person in patterns who had been poking at the child from below with a broom. I don't know with what object. I don't think she did. I therefore supposed that Mrs. Jellyby was not at home, and was quite surprised when the person appeared in the passage without the patterns, and going up to the back room on the first floor before Ada and me, announced us as, "'Them two young ladies, Mrs. Jellyby.' We passed several more children on the way up, whom it was difficult to avoid treading on in the dark, and as we came into Mrs. Jellyby's presence, one of the poor little things fell downstairs, down a whole flight, as it sounded to me, with a great noise. Mrs. Jellyby, whose face reflected none of the uneasiness which we could not help showing in our own faces, as the dear child's head recorded its passage with a bump on every stair, Richard afterwards said he counted seven besides one for the landing, received us with perfect equanimity. She was a pretty, very diminutive, plump woman of from forty to fifty, with handsome eyes, though they had a curious habit of seeming to look a long way off, as if, I am quoting Richard again, they could see nothing nearer than Africa. "'I am very glad indeed,' said Mrs. Jellyby, in an agreeable voice, "'to have the pleasure of receiving you. I have a great respect for Mr. John Dice, and no one in whom he is interested can be an object of indifference to me. We expressed our acknowledgments, and sat down behind the door, where there was a lame invalid of a sofa. Mrs. Jellyby had very good hair, but was too much occupied with her African duties to brush it. 
the shawl in which she had been loosely muffled dropped onto her chair when she advanced to us, and as she turned to resume her seat we could not help noticing that her dress didn't nearly meet up the back, and that the open space was railed across with the lattice-work of stay-lace, like a summer-house. The room, which was strewn with papers and nearly filled by a great writing-table, covered with similar litter, was, I must say, not only very untidy, but very dirty. We were obliged to take notice of that with our sense of sight, even while, with our sense of hearing, we followed the poor child who had tumbled downstairs, I think into the back kitchen, where somebody seemed to stifle him. But what principally struck us was a jaded and unhealthy-looking though by no means plain girl, at the writing-table, who sat biting the feather of her pen, and staring at us. I suppose nobody ever was in such a state of ink. And from her tumbled hair to her pretty feet, which were disfigured with frayed and broken satin slippers, trodden down at heel, she really seemed to have no article of dress upon her, from a pin upwards, that was in its proper condition, or its right place. "'You find me, my dears?' said Mrs. Jellyby, snuffing the two great office candles in tin candlesticks, which made the room taste strongly of hot tallow. The fire had gone out, and there was nothing in the grate but ashes, a bundle of wood, and a poker. "'You find me, my dears, as usual, very busy, but that you will excuse. The African project at present implores my whole time. It involves me in correspondence with public bodies, and with private individuals anxious for the welfare of their species all over the country.' I am happy to say it is advancing. We hope by this time next year to have from a hundred and fifty to two hundred healthy families cultivating coffee and educating the natives of Boriabulagar on the left bank of the Niger. As Ada said nothing but looked at me, I said it must be very gratifying. It is gratifying, said Mrs. Jellyby. It involves the devotion of all my energies, such as they are, but that is nothing, so that it succeeds, and I am more confident of success every day. Do you know, Miss Summerson, I almost wonder that you never turned your thoughts to Africa. This application of the subject was really so unexpected to me that I was quite at a loss how to receive it. I hinted that the climate—the finest climate in the world, said Mrs. Jellyby. Indeed, ma'am. "'Certainly. With precaution,' said Mrs. Jellyby. "'You may go into Hoban without precaution, and be run over. You may go into Hoban with precaution, and never be run over. Just so with Africa.' I said, "'No doubt. I meant as to Hoban.' "'If you would like,' said Mrs. Jellyby, putting a number of papers towards us, "'to look over some remarks on that head, and on the general subject, which have been extensively circulated, while I finish a letter I am now dictating to my eldest daughter, who is my amanuensis." The girl at the table left off biting her pen, and made a return to our recognition, which was half bashful and half sulky. "'I shall then have finished for the present,' proceeded Mrs. Jellyby, with a sweet smile. "'Though my work is never done. Where are you?' Caddy <sighs> presents her compliments to Mr. Swallow, and begs,' said Caddy. "'And begs,' said Mrs. Jellyby, dictating, "'to inform him, in reference to his letter of inquiry on the African project. No, Peepy, not on my account.' 
Peepy, so self-named, was the unfortunate child who had fallen downstairs, who now interrupted the correspondence by presenting himself with a strip of plaster on his forehead to exhibit his wounded knees, in which Ada and I did not know which to pity most, the bruises or the dirt. Mrs. Jellyby merely added, with the serene composure with which she said everything, "'Go along, you naughty peepy,' and fixed her fine eyes on Africa again. However, as she at once proceeded with her dictation, and as I interrupted nothing by doing it, I ventured quietly to stop poor peepy as he was going out, and to take him up to nurse. He looked very much astonished at it, and at Ada's kissing him, but soon fell fast asleep in my arms, sobbing at longer and longer intervals, until he was quiet. I was so occupied with Peepy that I lost the letter in detail, though I derived such a general impression from it of the momentous importance of Africa, and the utter insignificance of all other places and things, that I felt quite ashamed to have thought so little about it. Six o'clock,' said Mrs. Jellyby and our dinner-hour is nominally for we dine at all hours five a caddy show miss clare and miss summerson their rooms you will like to make some change perhaps you will excuse me i know being so much occupied oh that very bad child pray put him down miss summerson i begged permission to retain him truly saying that he was not at all troublesome and carried him upstairs and laid him on my bed Ada and I had two upper rooms with the door of communication between them. They were excessively bare and disorderly, and the curtain to my window was fastened up with a fork. "'You would like some hot water, wouldn't you?' said Miss Jellyby, looking round for a jug with a handle to it, but looking in vain. "'If it is not being troublesome,' said we. "'Oh, it's not the trouble,' returned Miss Jellyby. "'The question is—' if there is any. The evening was so very cold, and the rooms had such a marshy smell that I must confess it was a little miserable, and Ada was half crying. We soon laughed, however, and were busily unpacking when Miss Jellyby came back to say that she was sorry there was no hot water, but they couldn't find the kettle and the boiler was out of order. We begged her not to mention it, and made all the haste we could to get down to the fire again but all the little children had come up to the landing outside to look at the phenomenon of peepy lying on my bed and our attention was distracted by the constant apparition of noses and fingers in situations of danger between the hinges of the doors it was impossible to shut the door of either room for my lock with no knob to it looked as if it wanted to be wound up and though the handle of ada's went round and round with the greatest smoothness it was attended with no effect whatever on the door Therefore I proposed to the children that they should come in and be very good at my table, and I would tell them the story of Little Red Riding Hood while I dressed, which they did, and were as quiet as mice, including Peepy, who awoke opportunely before the appearance of the wolf. When we went downstairs we found a mug with a present from Tunbridge Wells on it, lighted up in the staircase window with a floating wick and a young woman, with a swelled face bound up in a flannel bandage, blowing the fire of the drawing-room, now connected by an open door with Mrs. Jellyby's room, and choking dreadfully. It smoked to that degree, in short, that we all sat coughing and crying with the windows open for half an hour, during which Mrs. Jellyby, with the same sweetness of temper, directed letters about Africa. Her being so employed was, I must say, a great relief to me, 
for Richard told us that he had washed his hands in a pie-dish, and that they had found the kettle on his dressing-table, and he made Ada laugh so that they made me laugh in the most ridiculous manner. Soon after seven o'clock we went down to dinner, carefully, by Mrs. Jellyby's advice, for the stair-carpets, besides being very deficient in stair-wires, were so torn as to be absolute traps. We had a fine codfish, a piece of roast beef, a dish of cutlets, and a pudding, an excellent dinner, if it had had any cooking to speak of, but it was almost raw. The young woman with the flannel bandage waited, and dropped everything on the table wherever it happened to go, and never moved it again until she put it on the stairs. The person I had seen in patterns, who I supposed to have been the cook, frequently came and skirmished with her at the door, and there appeared to be ill-will between them. All through dinner, which was long in consequence of such accidents as the dish of potatoes being mislaid in the coal-scuttle, and the handle of the corkscrew coming off and striking the young woman in the chin, Mrs. Jellyby preserved the evenness of her disposition. She told us a great deal that was interesting about Boreabula Gar and the natives, and received so many letters that Richard, who sat by her, saw four envelopes in the gravy at once. Some of the letters were proceedings of ladies' committees, or resolutions of ladies' meetings, which she read to us. Others were applications from people excited in various ways about the cultivation of coffee, and natives. Others required answers, and these she sent her eldest daughter from the table three or four times to write. She was full of business, and undoubtedly was, as she had told us, devoted to the cause. I was a little curious to know who a mild, bald gentleman in spectacles was, who dropped into a vacant chair, there was no top or bottom in particular, after the fish was taken away, and seemed passively to submit himself to Boreabula Gar, but not to be actively interested in that settlement. As he never spoke a word, he might have been a native, but for his complexion. It was not until we left the table, and he remained alone with Richard, that the possibility of his being Mr. Jellyby ever entered my head. But he was Mr. Jellyby, and a loquacious young man called Mr. Quail, with large shining knobs for temples, and his hair all brushed to the back of his head, who came in the evening, and told Ada he was a philanthropist, also informed her that he called the matrimonial alliance of Mrs. Jellyby with Mr. Jellyby the union of mind and matter. This young man, besides having a great deal to say for himself about Africa, and a project of his for teaching the coffee colonists to teach the natives to turn piano-forte legs, and establish an export trade, delighted in drawing Mrs. Jellyby out by saying, "'I believe now, Mrs. Jellyby, you have received as many as from one hundred and fifty to two hundred letters respecting Africa in a single day, have you not?' Or, "'If my memory does not deceive me, Mrs. Jellyby, you once mentioned that you had sent off five thousand circulars from one post-office at one time.' Always repeating Mrs. Jellyby's answer to us, like an interpreter. During the whole evening Mr. Jellyby sat in a corner, with his head against the wall, as if he were subject to low spirits. It seemed that he had several times opened his mouth, when alone with Richard after dinner, as if he had something on his mind, but had always shut it again to Richard's extreme confusion, without saying anything. Mrs. Jellyby, sitting in quite a nest of waste-paper, drank coffee all the evening, and dictated at intervals to her eldest daughter. She also held a discussion with Mr. Quayle, of which the subject seemed to be, if I understood it, the brotherhood of humanity, and gave utterance to some beautiful sentiments. 
I was not so attentive an auditor as I might have wished to be, however, for Peepy and the other children came flocking about Ada and me in a corner of the drawing-room to ask for another story. So we sat down among them, and told them in whispers, Puss in Boots, and I don't know what else, until Mrs. Jellyby, accidentally remembering them, sent them to bed. As Peepy cried for me to take him to bed, I carried him upstairs, where the young woman with the flannel bandage charged into the midst of the little family like a dragon, and overturned them into cribs. After that I occupied myself in making our room a little tidy, and in coaxing a very cross fire that had been lighted to burn, which at last it did, quite brightly. On my return downstairs I felt that Mrs. Jellyby looked down upon me rather for being so frivolous, and I was sorry for it, though at the same time I knew that I had no higher pretensions. It was nearly midnight before we found an opportunity of going to bed, and even then we left Mrs. Jellyby among her papers drinking coffee, and Miss Jellyby biting the feather of her pen. "'What a strange house!' said Ada, when we got upstairs. "'How curious of my cousin John Dice to send us here!' "'My love,' said I, "'it quite confuses me. I want to understand it, and I can't understand it at all.' "'What?' asked Ada, with her pretty smile. "'All this, my dear,' said I. "'It must be very good of Mrs. Jellyby to take such pains about a scheme for the benefit of natives, and yet peepy and the housekeeping. Ada laughed, and put her arm about my neck as I stood looking at the fire, and told me I was a quiet, dear, good creature, and had won her heart. "'You are so thoughtful, Esther,' she said, "'and yet so cheerful, and you do so much, so unpretendingly. You would make a home out of even this house.' "'My simple darling!' She was quite unconscious that she only praised herself, and that it was in the goodness of her own heart that she made so much of me. "'May I ask you a question?' said I, when we had sat before the fire a little while. Five hundred, said Ada. "'Your cousin, Mr. Jarndyce, I owe so much to him. Would you mind describing him to me?' Shaking her golden hair, Ada turned her eyes upon me with such laughing wonder that I was full of wonder too, partly at her beauty, partly at her surprise. "'Esther,' she cried, "'my dear, you want a description of my cousin Jarndyce. "'My dear, I never saw him.' "'And I never saw him,' returned Ada. "'Well, to be sure. "'No, she had never seen him.' Young as she was when her mamma died, she remembered how the tears would come into her eyes when she spoke of him, and of the noble generosity of his character, which she had said was to be trusted above all earthly things, and Ada trusted it. Her cousin Jarndyce had written to her a few months ago, a plain, honest letter, Ada said, proposing the arrangement we were now to enter on, and telling her that in time it might heal some of the wounds made by the miserable chancery suit. She had replied gratefully, accepting his proposal. Richard had received a similar letter, and had made a similar response. He had seen Mr. Jarndyce once, but only once, five years ago at Winchester School. He had told Ada, when they were leaning on the screen before the fire, where I found them, 
that he recollected him as a, a bluff, rosy fellow. This was the utmost description Ada could give me. It set me thinking so, that when Ada was asleep, I still remained before the fire, wondering and wondering about Bleak House, and wondering and wondering that yesterday morning should seem so long ago. I don't know where my thoughts had wandered when they were recalled by a tap at the door. I opened it softly, and found Miss Jellyby shivering there with a broken candle and a broken candlestick in one hand, and an egg-cup in the other. "'Good night,' she said very sulkily. "'Good night,' said I. "'May I come in?' She shortly and unexpectedly asked me in the same sulky way. "'Certainly,' said I. "'Don't wake Miss Clare.' She would not sit down but stood by the fire, dipping her inky middle finger in the egg-cup, which contained vinegar, and smearing it over the ink-stains on her face, frowning the whole time and looking very gloomy. "'I wish Africa was dead,' she said on a sudden. I was going to remonstrate. "'I do,' she said. "'Don't talk to me, Miss Summerson. I hate it, and detest it. It's a beast.' I told her she was tired, and I was sorry. I put my hand upon her head and touched her forehead, and said it was hot now, but would be cool to-morrow. She still stood pouting and frowning at me, but presently put down her egg-cup, and turned softly towards the bed, where Ada lay. "'She is very pretty,' she said with the same knitted brow and in the same uncivil manner. I assented with a smile. "'An orphan, ain't she?' Yes, but knows a quantity, I suppose. Can dance and play music and sing. She can talk French, I suppose, and do geography and globes and needlework and everything. No doubt, said I. I can't, she returned. I can't do anything hardly except write. I'm always writing for Ma. I wonder you two were not ashamed of yourself to come in this afternoon, and see me able to do nothing else. It was like your ill nature, yet you think yourselves very fine, I dare say. I could see that the poor girl was near crying, and I resumed my chair without speaking, and looked at her, I hope, as mildly as I felt towards her. "'It's disgraceful,' she said. "'You know it is. The whole house is disgraceful.' the children are disgraceful i'm disgraceful pa's miserable and no wonder priscilla drinks she's always drinking it's a great shame and a great story of you if you say you didn't smell her to-day it was as bad as a public-house waiting at dinner you know it was my dear i don't know it said i you do she said very shortly you shan't say you don't you do oh my dear said i "'If you won't let me speak—you're speaking now, you know you are. Don't tell stories, Miss Summerson.' "'My dear,' said I, "'as long as you won't hear me out, I don't want to hear you out.' "'Oh, yes, I think you do,' said I, "'because that would be so very unreasonable. I did not know what you tell me because the servant did not come near me at dinner. But I don't doubt what you tell me, and I am sorry to hear it. "'You needn't make a merit of that,' said she. "'No, my dear,' said I. "'That would be very foolish.' She was still standing by the bed, and now stooped down, 
but still with the same discontented face, and kissed Ada. That done, she came softly back and stood by the side of my chair. Her bosom was heaving in a distressful manner that I greatly pitied, but I thought it better not to speak. "'I wish I was dead,' she broke out. "'I wish we were all dead. It would be a great deal better for us.' In a moment afterwards, she knelt on the ground at my side, hid her face in my dress, passionately begged my pardon, and wept. I comforted her, and would have raised her, but she cried, No, no, she wanted to stay there. "'You used to teach girls,' she said. "'If you could only have taught me, I could have learned from you. I am so very miserable, and I like you so much.' I could not persuade her to sit by me, or to do anything but move a ragged stool to where she was kneeling, and take that, and still hold my dress in the same manner. By degrees the poor tired girl fell asleep, and then I contrived to raise her head, so that it should rest on my lap, and to cover us both with shawls. The fire went out, and all night long she slumbered thus before the ashy grate. At first I was painfully awake, and vainly tried to lose myself, with my eyes closed, among the scenes of the day. At length, by slow degrees, they became indistinct and mingled. I began to lose the identity of the sleeper resting on me. Now it was Ada, now one of my old Reading friends, from whom I could not believe I had so recently parted. Now it was the little madwoman, worn out with curtsying and smiling, now someone in authority at Bleak House. Lastly, it was no one, and I was no one. The purblind day was feebly struggling with the fog when I opened my eyes to encounter those of a dirty-faced little spectre fixed upon me. Peepy had scaled his crib, and crept down in his bedgown and cap, and was so cold that his teeth were chattering as if he had cut them all. End of chapter 4《Chapter Five of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Five. A Morning Adventure. Although the morning was raw, and although the fog still seemed heavy, I say seemed, for the windows were so encrusted with dirt that they would have made midsummer sunshine dim. I was sufficiently forewarned of the discomfort within doors at that early hour, and sufficiently curious about London to think it a good idea on the part of Miss Jellyby when she proposed that we should go out for a walk. "'Ma won't be down for ever so long,' she said, "'and then it's a chance if breakfast's ready for an hour afterwards they dawdle so. As to Pa, he gets what he can and goes to the office. He never has what you call a regular breakfast. Priscilla leaves him out the loaf and some milk, when there is any, overnight. Sometimes there isn't any milk, and sometimes the cat drinks it. But I'm afraid you must be tired, Miss Summerson, and perhaps you'd rather go to bed. I'm not at all tired, my dear, said I, and would much prefer to go out. If you're sure you would, returned Miss Jellyby, I'll get my things on. Ada said she would go too, and was soon astir. I made a proposal to Peepy, in default of being able to do anything better for him, that he should let me wash him, 
and afterwards lay him down on my bed again. To this he submitted with the best grace possible, staring at me during the whole operation, as if he never had been, and never could again be, so astonished in his life, looking very miserable also, certainly, but making no complaint, and going snugly to sleep as soon as it was over. At first I was in two minds about taking such a liberty, but I soon reflected that nobody in the house was likely to notice it. What with the bustle of dispatching Peepy, and the bustle of getting myself ready and helping Ada, I was soon quite in a glow. We found Miss Jellyby trying to warm herself at the fire in the writing-room, which Priscilla was then lighting with a smutty parlour candlestick, throwing the candle in to make it burn better. Everything was just as we had left it last night, and was evidently intended to remain so. Below stairs the dinner-cloth had not been taken away, but had been left ready for breakfast. Crumbs, dust, and waste-paper were all over the house. Some pewter pots and a milk-can hung on the area railings. The door stood open, and we met the cook around the corner, coming out of a public-house, wiping her mouth. She mentioned, as she passed us, that she had been to see what o'clock it was. Before we met the cook, we met Richard, who was dancing up and down, Thavies Inn, to warm his feet. He was agreeably surprised to see us, stirring so soon, and said he would gladly share our walk. So he took care of Ada, and Miss Jellyby and I went first. I may mention that Miss Jellyby had relapsed into her sulky manner, and that I really should not have thought she liked me much, unless she had told me so. "'Where would you wish to go?' she asked. "'Anywhere, my dear,' I replied. "'Anywhere's nowhere.' said Miss Jellyby, stopping perversely. "'Let us go somewhere, at any rate,' said I. She then walked me on very fast. "'I don't care,' she said. "'Now, you are my witness, Miss Summerson. I say I don't care. But if he were to come to our house with his great, shining, lumpy forehead, night after night, till he was as old as Methuselah, I wouldn't have anything to say to him. Such asses as he and Ma make of themselves.' "'My dear,' I remonstrated in allusion to the epithet, and the vigorous emphasis Miss Jellyby set upon it, "'your duty as a child—' "'Oh, don't talk of duty as a child, Miss Summerson. Where's Ma's duty as a parent? All made over to the public in Africa, I suppose. Then let the public in Africa show duty as a child. It's much more their affair than mine. You're shocked, I dare say. Very well. So am I shocked, too.' "'So we are both shocked, and there's an end of it.' "'She walked me on faster yet. "'But for all that, I say again, "'he may come and come and come, "'and I won't have anything to say to him. "'I can't bear him. "'If there's any stuff in the world that I hate and detest, "'it's the stuff he and Ma talk. "'I wonder the very paving-stones opposite our house "'can have the patience to stay there "'and be a witness of such inconsistencies and contradictions "'as all that sounding nonsense and Ma's management.' I could not but understand her to refer to Mr. Quayle, the young gentleman who had appeared after dinner yesterday. I was saved the disagreeable necessity of pursuing the subject by Richard and Ada coming up at a round pace, laughing and asking us if we meant to run a race. 
Thus interrupted, Miss Jellyby became silent, and walked moodily on at my side, while I admired the long successions and varieties of streets, the quantity of people already going to and fro, the number of vehicles passing and repassing, the busy preparations in the setting forth of shop windows, and the sweeping out of shops, and the extraordinary creatures in rags secretly groping among the swept-out rubbish for pins and other refuse. "'So, cousin,' said the cheerful voice of Richard to Ada behind me. "'We are never to get out of Chancery. We have come by another way to our place of meeting yesterday, and—by the great seal, here's the old lady again.' Truly, there she was, immediately in front of us, curtsying and smiling, and saying with her yesterday's air of patronage, "'The wards in Jarndyce, very happy, I'm sure.' "'You're out early, ma'am.' said I, as she curtsied to me. "'Yes, I usually walk here early, before the court sits. It's retired. I collect my thoughts here for the business of the day,' said the old lady mincingly. "'The business of the day requires a great deal of thought. Chancery justice is so very difficult to follow.' "'Who's this, Miss Summerson?' whispered Miss Jellyby, drawing my arm tighter through her own. The little old lady's hearing was remarkably quick. She answered for herself directly. "'A suitor, my child, at your service. I have the honour to attend court regularly with my documents. Have I the pleasure of addressing another of the youthful parties in Jarndyce?' said the old lady, recovering herself with her head on one side, from a very low curtsy. Richard, anxious to atone for his thoughtlessness of yesterday, good-naturedly explained that Miss Jellyby was not connected with the suit. "'Ah!' said the old lady. "'She does not expect a judgment. She will still grow old, but not so old. Oh, dear, no!' "'This is the garden of Lincoln's Inn. I call it my garden. It is quite a bower in the summer-time, where the birds sing melodiously. I pass the greater part of the long vacation here, in contemplation. You find the long vacation exceedingly long, don't you?' We said yes, as she seemed to expect us to say so. "'When the leaves are falling from the trees, and there are no more flowers in bloom to make up into nosegays for the Lord Chancellor's court,' said the old lady, "'the vacation is fulfilled, and the sixth seal, mentioned in the Revelations, again prevails. Pray, come and see my lodging. It will be a good omen for me. Youth and hope and beauty are very seldom there. It is a long long time since I had a visit from either. She had taken my hand, and leading me and Miss Jellyby away, beckoned Richard and Ada to come too. I did not know how to excuse myself, and looked to Richard for aid. As he was half amused and half curious, and all in doubt how to get rid of the old lady without offence, she continued to lead us away, and he and Ada continued to follow our strange conductress informing us all the time with much smiling condescension that she lived close by it was quite true as it soon appeared she lived so close by that we had not time to have done humouring her for a few moments before she was at home 
slipping us out at a little side gate the old lady stopped most unexpectedly in a narrow back street part of some courts and lanes immediately outside the wall of the inn and said this is my lodging pray walk up she had stopped at a shop over which was written crook rag and bottle warehouse also in long thin letters crook dealer and marine stores in one part of the window was a picture of a red paper mill at which a cart was unloading a quantity of sacks of old rags in another was the inscription bones bought and in another kitchen stuff bought in another old iron bought in another waste paper bought in another ladies and gentlemen's wardrobes bought everything seemed to be bought and nothing to be sold there in all parts of the window were quantities of dirty bottles blacking bottles medicine bottles ginger beer and soda water bottles pickle bottles wine bottles ink bottles i am reminded by mentioning the latter that the shop had in several little particulars the air of being in a legal neighbourhood and of being as it were a dirty hanger-on and disowned relation of the law there were a great many ink bottles there was a little tottering bench of shabby old volumes outside the door labelled law books all at ninepence some of the inscriptions i have enumerated were written in law hand like the papers i had seen in kenge and carboy's office and the letters i had so long received from the firm among them was one in the same writing having nothing to do with the business of the shop but announcing that a respectable man aged forty-five wanted engrossing or copying to execute with neatness and dispatch addressed to nemo care of mr crook within there were several second-hand bags blue and red hanging up a little way within the shop-door lay heaps of old crackled parchment scrolls and discoloured and dog's-eared law-papers i could have fancied that all the rusty keys of which there must have been hundreds huddled together as old iron had once belonged to doors of rooms or strong chests in lawyers offices the litter of rags tumbled partly into and partly out of a one-legged wooden scale hanging without any counterpoise from a beam might have been counsellors bands and gowns torn up one had only to fancy as richard whispered to ada and me while we all stood looking in that yonder bones in a corner piled together and picked very clean were the bones of clients to make the picture complete as it was still foggy and dark and as the shop was blinded besides by the wall of lincoln's inn intercepting the light within a couple of yards we should not have seen so much but for a lighted lantern that an old man in spectacles and a hairy cap was carrying about in the shop turning towards the door he now caught sight of us he was short cadaverous and withered with his head sunk sideways between his shoulders and the breath issuing invisible smoke from his mouth as if he were on fire within his throat chin and eyebrows were so frosted with white hairs and so gnarled with veins and puckered skin that he looked from his breast upward like some old root in a fall of snow Hi, hi, said the old man coming to the door have you anything to sell we naturally drew back and glanced at our conductress who had been trying to open the house door with the key she had taken from her pocket and to whom richard now said that as we had had the pleasure of seeing where she lived we would leave her being pressed for time 
but she was not to be so easily left she became so fantastically and pressingly earnest in her entreaties that we would walk up and see her apartment for an instant and was so bent in her harmless way on leading me in as part of the good omen she desired that i whatever the others might do saw nothing for it but to comply i suppose we were all more or less curious at any rate when the old man added his persuasions to hers and said ay ay please her it won't take a minute come in come in come in through the shop if t'other door's out of order we all went in stimulated by richard's laughing encouragement and relying on his protection my landlord crook said the little old lady condescending to him from her lofty station as she presented him to us he is called among the neighbours the lord chancellor his shop is called the court of chancery he is a very eccentric person he is very odd oh i assure you he is very odd she shook her head a great many times and tapped her forehead with her finger to express to us that we must have the goodness to excuse him for he is a little you know m said the old lady with great stateliness the old man overheard and laughed it's true enough he said going before us with the lantern that they call me the lord chancellor and call my shop chancery and what do you think they call me the lord chancellor and my shop chancery i don't know i am sure said richard rather carelessly you see said the old man stopping and turning around they here's lovely hair i have got three sacks of ladies hair below but none so beautiful and fine as this what colour and what texture that'll do my good friend said richard strongly disapproving of his having drawn one of ada's tresses through his yellow hand you can admire as the rest of us do without taking that liberty the old man darted at him a sudden look which even called my attention from ada who startled and blushing was so remarkably beautiful that she seemed to fix the wandering attention of the little old lady herself but as ada interposed and laughingly said she could only feel proud of such genuine admiration mr crook shrunk into his former self as suddenly as he had leapt out of it you see i have so many things here he resumed holding up the lantern of so many kinds and all as the neighbours think but they know nothing wasting away and going to rack and ruin that that's why they have given me in my place a christening and i have so many old parchments and papers in my stock and i have a liking for rust and must and cobwebs and all's fish that comes to my net and i can't abear to part with anything i once lay hold of or so my neighbours think but what do they know or to alter anything or to have any sweeping nor scouring nor cleaning nor repairing going on about me that's the way i've got the ill name of chancery i don't mind 
and go to see my noble and learned brother pretty well every day when he sits in the inn he don't notice me but i notice him there's no great odds betwixt us we both grub on in a muddle hi lady jane a large grey cat leapt from some neighbouring shelf on his shoulder and startled us all hi show em how you scratch hi tear my lady said her master the cat leapt down and ripped at a bundle of rags with her tigerish claws with a sound that it set my teeth on edge to hear she'd do as much for any one as i was to set her on said the old man i deal in catskins among other general matters and hers was offered to me it's a very fine skin as you may see but i didn't have it stripped off that warn't like chancery practice though says you he had by this time led us across the shop and now opened a door in the back part of it leading to the house entry as he stood with his hand upon the lock the little old lady graciously observed to him before passing out that will do crook you mean well but are tiresome my young friends are pressed for time i have none to spare myself having to attend court very soon my young friends are the wards in jarndyce jarndyce said the old man with a start jarndyce and jarndyce the great suit crook returned his lodger exclaimed the old man in a tone of thoughtful amazement and with a wider stare than before think of it he seemed so rapt all in a moment and looked so curiously at us that richard said why you appear to trouble yourself a good deal about the causes before your noble and learned brother the other chancellor yes said the old man abstractedly sure your name now will be richard carstone carstone he repeated slowly checking off that name upon his forefinger and each of the others he went on to mention upon a separate finger yes there was the name of barbary and the name of clare and the name of dedlock too i think he knows as much of the cause as the real salaried chancellor said richard quite astonished to ada and me ay said the old man coming slowly out of his abstraction yes tom jarndyce you'll excuse me being related but he was never known about court by any other name and was as well known there as she is now nodding slightly at his lodger tom jarndyce was often in here he got into a restless habit of strolling about when the cause was on or expected talking to the little shopkeepers and telling em to keep out of chancery whatever they did for says he it's being ground a bits in a slow mill it's being roasted at a slow fire it's being stung to death by single bees it's being drowned by drops it's going mad by grains he was as near making away with himself just where the young lady stands as near could be 
we listened with horror. "'He come in at the door,' said the old man, slowly pointing an imaginary track along the shop. "'On the day he did it. The whole neighbourhood had said for months before that he would do it, of a certainty, sooner or later.' He come in at the door that day, and walked along there, and sat himself on a bench that stood there, and asked me—you'll judge I was a mortal sight younger then—to fetch him a pint of wine. For, says he, Crook, I am much depressed. My cause is on again, and I think I'm nearer judgment than I ever was. I hadn't a mind to leave him alone, and I persuaded him to go to the tavern over the way there t'other side my lane—I mean, Chancery Lane—and I followed and looked in at the window, and saw him, comfortable as I thought, in the armchair by the fire, and company with him. I hadn't hardly got back here, when I heard a shot, go echoing and rattling right away into the inn. I ran out. Neighbours ran out. Twenty of us cried at once, "'Tom Jarndyce!' The old man stopped, looked hard at us, looked down into the lantern, blew the light out, and shut the lantern up. We were right. I needn't tell the present hearers. Hi, to be sure, how the neighbourhood poured into court that afternoon while the cause was on. How my noble and learned brother and all the rest of em grubbed and muddled away as usual, and tried to look as if they hadn't heard a word of the last fact in the case, or as if they had. Oh, dear me, nothing at all to do with it, if they had heard of it by any chance. Ada's colour had entirely left her, and Richard was scarcely less pale. Nor could I wonder— judging even from my emotions, and I was no party in the suit, that to hearts so untried and fresh it was a shock to come into the inheritance of a protracted misery, attended in the minds of many people with such dreadful recollections. I had another uneasiness in the application of the painful story to the poor half-witted creature who had brought us there, but, to my surprise, she seemed perfectly unconscious of that, and only led the way upstairs again informing us with the toleration of a superior creature for the infirmities of a common mortal that her landlord was a little m you know she lived at the top of the house in a pretty large room from which she had a glimpse of lincoln's inn hall this seemed to have been her principal inducement originally for taking up her residence there she could look at it she said in the night especially in the moonshine her room was clean, but very, very bare. I noticed the scantiest necessaries in the way of furniture, a few old prints from books, of chancellors and barristers, wafered against the wall, and some half-dozen reticules and work-bags, containing documents, as she informed us. There were neither coals nor ashes in the grate, and I saw no articles of clothing anywhere, nor any kind of food. Upon a shelf in an open cupboard were a plate or two, a cup or two, and so forth, but all dry and empty. There was a more affecting meaning in her pinched appearance, I thought, as I looked round, than I had understood before. "'Extremely honoured, I am sure,' said our poor hostess with the greatest suavity, "'by this visit from the wards in Jarndyce.' 
and very much indebted for the omen. It is a retired situation, considering I am limited as to situation, in consequence of the necessity of attending on the Chancellor. I have lived here many years. I pass my days in court, my evenings and my nights here. I find the nights long, for I sleep but little, and think much. That is, of course, unavoidable being in Chancery. I am sorry I cannot offer chocolate. I expect a judgment shortly, and shall then place my establishment on a superior footing. At present, I don't mind confessing to the wards in Jarndyce, in strict confidence, that I sometimes find it difficult to keep up a genteel appearance. I have felt the cold here. I have felt something sharper than cold. It matters very little. Pray excuse the introduction of such mean topics." She partly drew aside the curtain of the long, low garret window, and called our attention to a number of bird-cages hanging there, some containing several birds. There were larks, linnets, and goldfinches, I should think at least twenty. "'I began to keep the little creatures,' she said with an object that the wards will readily comprehend with the intention of restoring them to liberty when my judgment should be given yes they die in prison though their lives poor silly things are so short in comparison with chancery proceedings that one by one the whole collection has died over and over again i doubt do you know whether one of these, though they are all young, will live to be free. Very mortifying, is it not? Although she sometimes asked a question, she never seemed to expect a reply, but rambled on as if she were in the habit of doing so when no one but herself was present. Indeed, she pursued, I positively doubt sometimes, I do assure you, whether while matters are still unsettled, and the sixth or great seal still prevails, I may not one day be found lying stark and senseless here, as I have found so many birds." Richard, answering what he saw in Ada's compassionate eyes, took the opportunity of laying some money, softly and unobserved, on the chimney-piece we all drew nearer to the cages, feigning to examine the birds. "'I can't allow them to sing much,' said the little old lady, "'for you'll think this curious. I find my mind confused by the idea that they are singing while I am following the arguments in court, and my mind requires to be so very clear, you know. Another time—' I'll tell you their names. Not at present. On a day of such good omen they shall sing as much as they like, in honour of youth, a smile and curtsy, hope, a smile and curtsy, and beauty, a smile and curtsy. There, we'll let in the full light. The birds began to stir and chirp. "'I cannot admit the air freely,' said the little old lady. The room was close, and would have been the better for it. "'Because the cat you saw downstairs, called Lady Jane, 
is greedy for their lives. She crouches on the parapet outside, for hours and hours, I have discovered. Whispering mysteriously, that her natural cruelty is sharpened by a jealous fear of their regaining their liberty, in consequence of the judgment I expect being shortly given. She is sly and full of malice. I half believe sometimes that she is no cat, but the wolf of the old saying. It is so very difficult to keep her from the door. Some neighbouring bells, reminding the poor soul that it was half-past nine, did more for us in the way of bringing our visit to an end than we could easily have done for ourselves. She hurriedly took up her little bag of documents, which she had laid upon the table on coming in, and asked if we were also going into court. On our answering no, and that we would on no account detain her, she opened the door to attend us downstairs. "'With such an omen, it is even more necessary than usual that I should be there before the Chancellor comes in,' said she, "'for he might mention my case the first thing. I have a presentiment that he will mention it the first thing this morning.' She stopped to tell us in a whisper, as we were going down, that the whole house was filled with strange lumber, which her landlord had bought piecemeal, and had no wish to sell in consequence of being a little M. This was on the first floor, but she had made a previous stoppage on the second floor, and had silently pointed at a dark door there. "'The only other lodger,' she now whispered in explanation, "'a law-writer.' The children in the lanes here say he has sold himself to the devil. I don't know what he can have done with the money. Hush! She appeared to mistrust that the lodger might hear her even there, and repeating, Hush! went before us on tiptoe, as though even the sound of her footsteps might reveal to him what she had said. Passing through the shop on our way out, as we had passed through it on our way in, we found the old man storing a quantity of packets of waste paper in a kind of well in the floor. He seemed to be working hard, with the perspiration standing on his forehead, and had a piece of chalk by him, with which, as he put each separate package or bundle down, he made a crooked mark on the panelling of the wall. Richard and Ada and Miss Jellyby and the little old lady had gone by him, and I was going when he touched me on the arm to stay me, and chalked the letter J upon the wall in a very curious manner, beginning with the end of the letter, and shaping it backward. It was a capital letter, not a printed one, but just such a letter as any clerk in Messrs. Kenge and Carboy's office would have made. "'Can you read it?' he asked me with a keen glance. "'Surely,' said I. "'It's very plain.' "'What is it?' "'J.' With another glance at me, and a glance at the door, he rubbed it out, and turned an A in its place, not a capital letter this time, and said, "'What's that?' I told him. He then rubbed that out, and turned the letter R, and asked me the same question. He went on quickly, until he had formed in the same curious manner, beginning at the ends and bottoms of the letters, the word Jarndyce without once leaving two letters on the wall together. "'What does that spell?' he asked me. 
When I told him, he laughed, in the same odd way, yet with the same rapidity he then produced singly, and rubbed out singly, the letters forming the words, Bleak House. These, in some astonishment, I also read, and he laughed again. "'said the old man, laying aside the chalk. "'I have a turn for copying from memory, you see, miss, "'though I can neither read nor write.' "'He looked so disagreeable, and his cat looked so wickedly at me, "'as if I were a blood relation of the birds upstairs, "'that I was quite relieved by Richard's appearing at the door and saying, "'Miss Summerson, I hope you are not bargaining for the sale of your hair. "'Don't be tempted. Three sacks below are quite enough for Mr. Crook.' I lost no time in wishing Mr. Crook good morning, and joining my friends outside, where we parted with the little old lady, who gave us her blessing with great ceremony, and renewed her assurance of yesterday in reference to her intention of settling estates on Ada and me. Before we finally turned out of those lanes, we looked back, and saw Mr. Crook standing at his shop-door, in his spectacles, looking after us with his cat upon his shoulder, and her tail sticking up on one side of his hairy cap like a tall feather. "'Quite an adventure for a morning in London,' said Richard, with a sigh. "'Ah, cousin, cousin, it's a weary word, this chancery.' "'It is to me, and has been ever since I can remember,' returned Ada. "'I'm grieved that I should be the enemy, as I suppose I am, of a great number of relations and others.' and that they should be my enemies as i suppose they are and that we should all be ruining one another without knowing how or why and be in constant doubt and discord all our lives it seems very strange as there must be right somewhere that an honest judge in real earnest has not been able to find out through all these years where it is ah cousin said richard strange indeed all this wasteful, wanton chess-playing is very strange. To see that composed court yesterday jogging on so serenely, and to think of the wretchedness of the pieces on the board, gave me the headache and the heartache both together. My head ached with wondering how it happened, if men were neither fools nor rascals, and my heart ached to think they could possibly be either. But at all events, Ada—I may call you Ada—of course you may, Cousin Richard. At all events, Chancery will work none of its bad influences on us. We have happily been brought together, thanks to our good kinsman, and it can't divide us now. Never, I hope, Cousin Richard, said Ada gently. Miss Jellyby gave my arm a squeeze, and me a very significant look. I smiled in return, and we made the rest of the way back very pleasantly. In half an hour after our arrival, Mrs. Jellyby appeared, and in the course of an hour the various things necessary for breakfast straggled one by one into the dining-room. I do not doubt that Mrs. Jellyby had gone to bed and got up in the usual manner, but she presented no appearance of having changed her dress. She was greatly occupied during breakfast, for the morning's post brought a heavy correspondence relative to Boriabula Gar, which would occasion her, she said, to pass a busy day. The children tumbled about, and notched memoranda of their accidents in their legs, which were perfect little calendars of distress, and Peepy was lost for an hour and a half, and brought home from Newgate Market by a policeman, 
the equable manner in which Mrs. Jellyby sustained both his absence and his restoration to the family circle, surprised us all. She was by that time perseveringly dictating to Caddy, and Caddy was fast relapsing into the inky condition in which we had found her. At one o'clock an open carriage arrived for us, and a cart for our luggage. Mrs. Jellyby charged us with many remembrances to her good friend Mr. Jarndyce. Caddy left her desk to see us depart, kissed me in the passage, and stood biting her pen, and sobbing on the steps. Peepy, I am happy to say, was asleep, and spared the pain of separation. I was not without misgivings that he had gone to Newgate Market in search of me, and all the other children got up behind the barouche, and fell off, and we saw them, with great concern, scattered over the surface of Tavy's Inn, as we rolled out of its precincts. End of chapter 5